0: this is maureen Milliken, and this
1: is rebecca Milliken, and this is crime and stuff
0: the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do and we're back after our break of quite a wild long break and as a special i didn't intend this but this may be one of our longest single episodes ever. in the past i've had some long ones that we ended up breaking into two episodes but i didn't want to do it with this because of the story you know people don't have to listen all at once We've heard before, oh, your podcast episodes are so long. You know what, though?
1: I listen to other podcasts, and I honestly don't care how long they are. Right.
0: You can binge a podcast with eight episodes where all the episodes are 33 minutes long. Or you can listen to one or Or two. Or even like
1: if I'm listening to Case File or something and it's a long one, like I'll listen to some of it in my car or whatever,
0: and then I just pick it up where I left off. So I don't really understand. Right. I don't understand what the problem is. It's just like people who complain about a book being too long, like our community read here in town. Oh, let's not pick a long book this year. Oh, the book's too long. I'm like, well, just pretend like it's three short books. I
1: know. I I mean,
0: I guess some people only read one or two books a year or some stupid shit, but that's, I feel sorry for them should we just start so are you ready because i want I'm you to ready. be all
1: settled and... and i don't know what you're doing and I'm you probably excited. aren't even
0: you probably aren't even familiar with it i think uh, it's possible someone other places have done it but um we'll we'll talk more about that okay are you okay. are you ready okay i'm ready okay i got almost all of my information for this from newspaper accounts at the time all of them the new hampshire union leader And I had to use the online archives for the Manchester City Library because the union leader is not on newspapers.com. And even though I have a digital subscription to their very annoying (laughs) digital product, they don't have archives in their digital. And the library archives, which only go back to 1989, but fortunately for me, this story starts after that, are not the pages of the newspaper like you see on newspaper.com. They're just text accounts of the articles. So there were no photos. I could find no photos online. So anyway, I got a little tiny bit from newspapers.com from like one or two little details from a story about something else. There was also an incredibly flawed episode of Swamp Murders. Ooh, about swamp this case murders. yes i'll note it as, as a source when i use information from it it had many many errors it was laughable in many places and i had to pay a dollar 99 to get it on youtube so i could hate yeah. watch it but it was worth hate watching it and it did give me one vital piece of information that i hope is accurate and some other information but again i'll i'll note that when i get to it so should we just start yes i'm excited okay Floyd Welch and his wife, Jay Villani Welch, were on a walk along Stark Lane in Manchester, New Hampshire, on April 24th, 2004. It was a cloudy and breezy morning, typically cool for April, with temperatures only in the 40s. Not a great day for a walk, but they were selling their house and had to get out so the realtor could do a showing. Mm. It had been an average snowy winter in Manchester, the state's largest city, with a population at the time of around 100,000. Though um, that 100,000 may include the suburbs. I don't know. There have been about 60 inches of snow that winter. The first major snowfall was the first week in December when they got about eight inches. By the end of April, the snow was gone, but things hadn't started greening up much yet. And the world had that brown and gray, dirty northern New England look that it takes on during what we call mud season, where everything is kind of dead, any grass and stuff from The summer and fall before is just brown and dead and broke. The road Floyd and Jay were walking along wasn't particularly scenic either, though it's right next to the Merrimack River, which divides Manchester in half. As the couple walked along the road near the scrubby, overgrown and swampy area where radio station WGIR has a transmission building and a couple of radio towers, Floyd saw a small black snap purse. It was dirty, like it had been there all winter. He kicked it aside and saw a piece of clothing, a black bustier type top or a crop top, depending mm. on which article you read. In any case, the clothing there seemed odd to him. He looked around and saw more clothing in the scrubby brush that led to a small boggy pond near the radio transmitters. All of the clothing was dirty and flattened like it had been there all winter. Where's the body? He said jokingly. To no. They didn't have to look for long. As they followed a short makeshift trail into the brush, they saw skeletonized human remains at the edge of the small bog near the towers. Welch told the union leader later that day that the remains had to have been in the water over the winter because they were little more than skin covering bones. The ribs and parts of the skull were exposed. Still, there was enough there that Welch, 49, realized the body was naked except for what he thought were green socks. More on that later because it's a semi important detail. Floyd and Jay, in the first seconds of seeing it, found it hard to recognize it as once human. It looked like a piece of driftwood, Floyd said. Stark Lane is a narrow road in a small neighborhood on the city's west side, crammed between Interstate 293 and the Merrimack River. Now, 20 years later, homes are jammed along the very narrow street which is off Front Street, also Route 3A, which is a two-lane road that runs from Manchester north to Concord. Back then, there were fewer houses. Despite its closeness to the highway, exit 7 from 293 is just yards away. It feels isolated and cut off from the city. If you watch the episode of Swamp Murders, (laughs) goth, Goth Girl Gone... The discovery of these remains is depicted as an older woman walking on a trail in pastoral woods near a babbling creek. <laughs> total fiction, one of many total fictions in that episode. The Merrimack River is a 117-mile-long river that begins at the confluence of the Pemigewasset and Winnipesaukee Rivers in Franklin, New Hampshire, about 30 miles north of Manchester. By the time it gets to the city, it's between 1,000 and 1,400 feet or more wide in places. It's a big river. The Merrimack once powered the mile-long Amiskeg Mills, at one time the biggest textile producer in the world. It also powered the mills of Nashua, Lawrence, Lowell, and Haverhill, Massachusetts, before entering the Atlantic at Newburyport, Massachusetts. So it's not the babbling brook depicted on the TV show. (laughs) The bog where the Welshes found the remains was not a tributary or water body, but more of a swampy area about the size of a football field that mostly dries up in the summer and in the warmer months is a muddy tangle of underbrush, briars, poison ivy, weeds, and bugs. Sounds lovely. Yeah. Barry Lucier, whose yard abuts the area, said that by August it would be just a swamp or even dried up with six foot high grass and underbrush. It's not a place where anyone would go hiking or exploring, just a small vacant wasteland in a corner of the city. Eric Talberg, whose backyard abuts the spot where the remains were found, said he'd likely been looking at them from his bathroom for (sighs) a few weeks since the snow had melted, but he didn't realize what he'd been looking at. It looked like a mound of mud, a muddy clump of grass, he said. Another neighbor had seen it from a distance and thought it was a discarded tire investigators from manchester police and the state attorney general's office were at the scene by 11 a.m that day and worked into the night they wouldn't say much about what if anything they found state assistant attorney general will Dulker did say though that the death was suspicious and Mm -hmm. they were awaiting the result of the autopsy which was done the next morning in concord the state's capital i'd be
1: totally creeped out if i found out a body was like right behind your house all winter yeah
0: yeah Yeah. an article in the union leader asked how it was possible a body could have been there obviously for months without being discovered the story said residents also wondered the same thing some articles make it sound like people would romp through the area catching butterflies and stuff (laughs) but that just doesn't pass the straight face test i used to go running past there and i wasn't really surprised no one saw the body Even before winter, it's a little wasteland right in the middle of this kind of residential area. And like I said, it's just boggy and with lots of plant growth and, you know, and radio transmission towers and it doesn't lead to anywhere. You don't go through it to get to somewhere else. And you were around when this- Yes, I was. I remember this well. Stark Lane resident Don Roy, like me, wasn't surprised no one spotted the remains. He said the end of summer and fall were wet and there was an early freeze. Quote- We had a skim of ice over that location pretty early on for the season. He figures the body sank into the mud, was iced over, and lay there hidden until winter killed back the tall grass and the spring thaw revealed it. By the next day, the police still hadn't made an identification, but the newspapers were already speculating it was Amy Lynn Riley. Amy, 20, had disappeared the previous summer. Unlike Maura Murray, who disappeared just that February... Amy's parents had a lot of trouble getting anyone to pay any attention. Spoiler alert, the body in Manchester was not Maura Murray. Manchester in southern New Hampshire is a good 90 minutes or more drive and from where Maura disappeared and not a likely place to dump a body that you'd abducted in deep woods and mountains of northwestern New Hampshire. There are plenty of better places. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about Maura Murray and what we think of all that, listen to episode eight. Can you believe that was. Oh, that was a long
1: time ago.
0: Now back to Amy Lynn Riley. Amy was born on Christmas Day, 1982, and grew up in Chester, a small town less than half an hour east of Manchester. While it's a sleepy farming town with a small village at its center, unlike what's depicted in Swamp Murders, it's not full of Hicks who live in fear of what the show calls the city. <laughs> Like, oh, no, you're going to the city? (laughs) Ma, I'm moving to the city. People in Chester and all of Manchester's suburbs go to Manchester probably several times a week to shop, eat at restaurants, go to the mall and other things. Amy was the only child of Charlotte and Mike Riley. She was good-natured with a sunny disposition and was a loyal friend, but she was also a little shy. She was an artistic child who loved horses, McDonald's, the mall, fruit smoothies, ramen noodles and animals. She started riding ponies, then horses, shortly after she could walk, and she always had a dog. As a child, whenever they went somewhere, she'd want to call her dog from a payphone to make sure it was okay and (laughs) didn't miss her.
1: That's cute.
0: She dreamed one day of owning a pet store. When she was 12 or 13, she met Barbara Blake, who was about 20 years older and had just moved to Chester and had a horse farm. Amy spent long hours at Blake's horse farm, house-sitting and helping care for the horses. Amy was an accomplished horsewoman and endurance rider, winning many trophies. She often confided in Blake, who thought the child was lonely. In her teens, Amy made money babysitting, saving up enough to buy a small truck when she was 15. She and her father fixed it up and she paid for her own insurance. But around that time, something changed for Amy. She'd always been a smart and conscientious student, but her junior year at Pinkerton Academy in Derry, New Hampshire, she flunked all her classes and Pinkerton Academy by the way is is and was then the state's biggest high school it has about 3,200 students wow which is the same size as the town I live in so she flunked all her classes junior year but changed her report card and her parents didn't find out until the end of the year Mm. that summer Amy was sent to Outward Bound and seemed to embrace the challenging outdoor program she and her parents also went to family counseling even so Amy dropped out of high school in October 2000, her senior year, which broke her relationship with her parents, at least temporarily. Her mother said, I think she decided to screw off her whole junior year and she was living a lie and she couldn't live with that. Amy, 17, moved out of the house. She told Barbara Blake and other friends that when she went back to get some of her stuff, including her mountain bike and saddle, she was locked out and couldn't get in. Her mother huh. later said that her stuff was in the barn and she could have gotten it if she had wanted to. Her mother said, we changed the locks in October when she left. We did not want her to come back to the house while we were not here. There was nothing here that was of value to her that she had a right to come back and take. And she certainly couldn't afford to take her horse. And I wonder if there was stuff going on that her mother did not tell the media. <laughs> people Amy might have been associating There's with. There's
1: gotta be something.
0: Her parents also hired a private investigator to keep tabs on her for them. I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know that it was a very long time. Amy, estranged from her parents, became legally emancipated at 17. For a short time, she worked at a pet store in Hudson, a town across the Merrimack River from Nashua, about half an hour south of Manchester. Amy lived in an apartment above the store, but that all ended when she reported the store owner for selling sick puppies. Her friend Crystal Valier said, Amy turned her in because Amy was an animal lover. She didn't like it at all. To make ends meet, Amy briefly worked in the local porn video industry, Valier said. Amy lived where she could, even for a short time living in her pickup truck. At some point, Amy lost her driver's license and was also charged with unlawful possession of alcohol and for carrying a Dirk knife, which is a dagger-like knife with one of those fancy handles. It's against the law in New Hampshire and most other states to carry one concealed. Ah. It was around this time that Amy, who had a blonde, blue-eyed girl-next-door look, changed to a goth look, dyeing her hair black or other colors and dressing all in black clothes. Janelle Robb, a friend of Amy, said she had a lot of hurt in her life i don't know how many times she lived with different friends but it just started to wear on her despite all of amy's problems valier her other friend said she was very intelligent hard-working and was the least judgmental person i have probably ever met in my life she was a capricorn same as me valier said mm. riley loved astrology and fantasy stuff according to valier and would spend hours at barnes and noble bookstore reading books on the subjects She also loved to draw, filling sketchbooks with dragons and other figures. When Amy was 18, in October 2001, she married Marcus Ross, a Mm. musician who was older than her. The marriage didn't solve her problems, though. She struggled with feelings of worthlessness and began drinking heavily. Ross also physically abused Amy. Mm. Amy's friend Barbara Blake told union leader reporter Kathy Marchaki, she was so vulnerable, So any man who came along and gave her attention and said, you're pretty, you're nice, she was just, really? I am? Then she got into the wrong crowd. On the Swamp Murder Show, this is depicted, the wrong crowd, as a bunch of ultra-goth, punk-rock-looking people, all hanging out in what's apparently supposed to be a downtown Manchester parking lot, with fires burning and 55-gallon barrels, smoking, drinking, and laughing with evil intensity. Sounds like fun. For no apparent reason. As someone who lived in Manchester at the time and worked at the newspaper there, I can tell you that what's depicted in swamp murders just did not exist.
1: Most, I'm disappointed.
0: Most people <laughs> and I, most people in, in articles back then said Amy's goth look stood out. So it wasn't like she was hanging around in, with this roaming band of goths. She wore that look. But my guess is that Amy's crowd was the usual drunks, burnouts, and petty criminals sitting around in triple deckers, yep. drinking and smoking cigarettes, and saying fuck a lot, and not working. I think anyone who lived in a northern New England city in the past 50 years, and even now, knows what I'm talking about. Do you, Becky? Yes, I you know do. What kind of person I'm talking Amy's marriage to Marcus- My friends. Ro- yes, I know. Amy's <laughs> marriage to Marcus Ross didn't last long. Oh. They had split by January 2003, and he moved to Florida. Amy started working on trying to get a divorce. From the little written about it, it doesn't seem like he was contesting it or anything. It just seemed like it was a hassle for her, and she had other stuff going on. In early 2003, she began dating Joe Pelletier, and for a while, the two lived with Pelletier's father, stepmother, and sister in Londonderry, New Hampshire, another town in the Manchester suburbs. For listeners who are not familiar particularly those in the UK, unlike in Northern Ireland, Derry and Londonderry in New Hampshire are two different towns. Okay. They're both towns that are just east of Manchester and suburbs of Manchester. So just so um, when I'm talking about Dairy or Londonderry, they're, they're separate towns I'm talking about. Joey's father liked Amy. She was hardworking, smart, and kind and had a passion for animals. She told him she hoped to become an animal breeder. It didn't take long before Pelletier's father convinced Amy to call her parents. She started with her father, but soon, in early 2003, was talking to both of her parents frequently on the telephone. Her friend, Crystal Valier said that Amy told her that her mother cried she was so happy to hear from her. Amy and Joe soon moved out of his father's house and into an apartment at 315 Cedar Street in Manchester. The Swamp Murder show inexplicably shows a cute little white bungalow. Put <laughs> into reality, they lived in, a, in one of those big blocky three-story apartment houses built in the late 18 or 1900s for mill workers, not a triple-decker which has like one apartment per floor, but one of those bigger, just big like
1: box in ones, <laughs> like Lewiston. Of...
0: Lewiston was the one thing yeah. I thought of. Downtown Manchester and other mill towns across New England are loaded with them and they're usually at the lowest end of the food chain as far as living accommodations go. Crystal Valier said Amy and Joey Pelletier seemed happy together. She really liked him a lot and Joey really liked her. Amy also was getting her life together. She began studying for her G- GED, which uh-huh. is a test you can take to get your high school diploma if you dropped out, and she got a job with a temp agency, Labor Ready. Through the agency, by summer of 2003, she was working on the picking line at Urco Construction and Demolition Recycling in Epping, New Hampshire. The job involved removing plastic, paper, and sheetrock from the mix of construction and demolition uh-huh. debris. That came across the recycling line and i know she was working there in the summer of 2003 she may have been working there much earlier than that it's not clear Mm. at the job she not only worked alongside full-time erco employees but also minimum security inmates from rockingham county jail Mm. she had a dog beezer who was a pit bull and a cat kit kat who was pregnant in the summer of 2003
1: Mm. Mm.
0: Joey Pelletier thought that Amy was unique, beautiful, and brilliant. He hoped to marry her, even though she said that she was never going to get married again. Smart girl. Yeah. Amy, though, told a friend who wasn't identified in a union leader story, which always is suspect to me, that she was frustrated that Joey wasn't working.
1: Mm.
0: She was getting increasingly unhappy with him, the friend said. He wouldn't get a job, and he wouldn't do much around the house. And she had to bust her butt for him. But she did love Mm. him sounds um typical the friend also said that amy had an interest in some guy at her work one of the rockingham county jail Mm -mm. inmates i think he was getting out of jail soon but Mm. i don't think they ever hung out the friend said whatever amy's issues may have been with joey that summer she gave him a watch that didn't have any hands and told him this represents our love our love is endless sweet
1: That's sweet
0: Amy's life hit a bump on August 9th 2003 when she was grabbed by two men pulled into a car outside Cumberland Farms in downtown Manchester brought to an apartment and raped she immediately reported it to police at the time there was a serial rapist in the city though police hadn't made that fact public Mm. they didn't think The attack on Amy was one of his anyway. The serial rapist was a white guy who operated alone, and Amy told police her attackers were two Hispanic guys. Six days later, on August 15th, Amy and a friend from Labor Ready, Kathy, decided to go out for a night of fun. Joey was going to join them, but he had two friends from Londonderry showing up at the apartment, Justin Quish and Christopher Fields, so he dropped Amy off at the Hogs Trough Saloon on Lincoln, yeah, on Lincoln Street in Manchester around seven. Then went home to meet his friends with the plan to bring them back to the club to join Amy and Kathy. Amy was dressed in either a black bustier or a cropped shirt, depending on which article you read, mm. a black skirt, a long black coat with a feathery boa fringe, and black boots. Mm. The Swamp Murder episode shows her dressed in basically a dominatrix outfit, <laughs> including full black corset and fishnet stockings. Oh my god. But I think her look was more goth than BDSM. She was wearing like a coat with a, a long coat with a feather boa. You so know, who, yeah. In any case, as the union leader reported at the Hogs Trough, quote, she attracted attention with her body piercings and goth style clothes. Unquote. The Hogs Trough, which had opened the year before, catered to an older crowd. I mean, older than Amy. Amy was 20 at the time.
1: Uh-huh.
0: It served full meals and at a house band, the bars, that covered Aerosmith, Bad Company, Three Doors Down, The Foo Fighters, and more. The night Amy and Kathy visited, the band was Fear of Flying, another local cover band that skewed more toward heavy metal, playing Pantera and Iron Maiden, but also the Beatles and Bon Jovi.
1: Well, of course.
0: It's Manchester, after all. Amy, as I said, was younger than most of the crowd there, which made her stand out as much as her goth look did, manager Shannon McCarthy said. A guy started buying Amy and Kathy drinks. Uh, he was described as stocky with brown hair. After they'd been there for about an hour, the bouncer, whose shift had just started, thought Amy looked a little young and asked her for an ID. She didn't have one, so he escorted her to the door. The manager, Shannon McCarthy, said that Amy was also acting drunk, but that they hadn't served her any alcohol. Uh, Kathy said also that Amy had too much to drink, so my guess is the bar was just covering its ass, saying Amy hadn't been served. Technically, she hadn't because that guy was buying them drinks. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Anyway, Amy told Kathy to stay if she wanted, that she'd walk home. The bouncer who escorted Amy to the door watched as she crossed Lincoln Street. Most reports said she crossed the street to the Hideaway Lounge, which was another bar. In reality, it wasn't right on the street across Lincoln Street. It's only a, a two-lane, you know, city street. But across the street is a shopping center with a little grass verge that you have to go up. You could see the highway from there, but it's not like it was directly on the street across the street okay. from Hogs Trop. And I just am saying that because who knows why she was crossing the street.
1: So also, the, uh, there might have been a payphone at the shopping center, right?
0: Possible. Yes. Manchester, despite being the biggest city in New Hampshire, really isn't that big in a lot of ways. It was less than half a mile, a couple blocks north on Lincoln Street, then a couple west on Cedar to Joey and Amy's apartment. She could have easily walked home. When Joey showed up sometime between 9 and 10 with one of his friends, Justin Quish, he found Kathy, but not Amy. Kathy told him Amy got too drunk and they kicked her out, but not Hmm. to worry, she was walking home. Kathy told Joey all about the tall, stocky, dark-haired guy who'd been buying them drinks. Joey drove the several blocks back home, but Amy wasn't there. He didn't see her on the way. He drove around a little and didn't see her walking around anywhere. He called her friends, but nobody picked up or the ones who did hadn't seen her. And just a reminder that while in 2003, some people had cell phones, a lot of people still didn't, particularly if they were lower income. Yes. And none of these people did. He went back to the hog's trough. And manager Shannon McCarthy told him about Amy being escorted out and that the bouncers saw her cross the street to the hideaway lounge. Joey went over to the hideaway, looked around, but Amy wasn't there. As the night wore on, he got more worried and more drunk. He called Manchester police around 3 a.m. to report her missing. They told him to call back after he'd sobered up.
1: Jeez. Oh,
0: he was worried because she'd said she'd be there and she was reliable like that. Also, she'd been raped by two men less than a week before, and it had him jumpy, and he was worried about her. She also had $675 in cash, the rent money in her purse. And on top of it all, he wanted to make sure the cops knew if something happened to her that it wasn't him who had done it. Mm. Poor Joey, though. I think he went about that the wrong way. He called the police again later in the morning and filed a missing person report, but the police didn't seem to take it very seriously. Manchester police passed the report off to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department. It's not clear when. It could have been after Joey told them he had also told Amy's parents that she was missing. And the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department, who had an investigator who handled missing person cases, talked to Shannon McCarthy, the bar manager, who told the investigator a bar patron told her she'd seen Amy arguing with someone across Lincoln Street after she was tossed out. The investigator tracked the person down. The hog's trough had a lot of regulars, and the woman said she saw Amy arguing with a short, stocky, brown-haired man, not to be confused with the tall, stocky, brown-haired man who was buying them drinks. The patron said it looked like a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Hmm. The bar patron, who isn't named in any of the articles, is the only person who apparently saw an argument going on or Amy talking to anyone. Everyone from the police to his family told Joey Pelletier that Amy probably took off, She had the rent money, she's an adult, blah, 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 blah. The fact that she'd had a rocky couple of years and dressed in goth clothes and had piercings didn't help. In the days and weeks after Amy vanished, Joey kept going back to the hog's trough and anywhere else he could think of to talk to people and see if he could find out what had happened to her. He said that at least three people told him they saw Amy with a stocky, tall, dark-haired man that night. He and his sister, Christina, put up flyers around town, offering a $2,500 reward for information. He gave police every detail of information he could find, but they didn't seem that interested. He couldn't believe she'd just walk out, particularly with the rent money, which was totally against her character. She was very responsible. And even more not like her, she wouldn't have left her dog, Beezer, and her very pregnant cat, Kit Kat.
1: Exactly.
0: Joseph Pelletier III, Joey's father, and Joey's stepmother, Rebecca, kept telling Joey that Amy had taken off, but he only responded, no, everything was fine with us. She didn't take off. Joe Sr. said, my son was so distraught for months. But eventually, Joey accepted Amy and moved on. Quote, I think she left with a tall, stocky, dark-haired dude and got back into drugs, which she briefly dabbled with before they dated, but once they started going out, she had stopped doing. Joey moved 90 minutes up Interstate 93 to the mountain town of Lincoln. Other friends kept their hopes up. Janelle Robb posted Amy's picture on suicidegirls.com, a self-described pin-up punk rock and goth girls website, hoping someone would have information, but she didn't hear anything. Charlotte Riley, Amy's mother, also didn't believe Amy had just taken off, despite the fact that people and the police kept telling her that she probably did.
1: That would be so frustrating.
0: I know, you'll see. Amy had just started reconnecting and Charlotte couldn't believe that she'd suddenly stop. She also knew, and and as this with so many things, people think, well, she didn't want to be with that boy anymore. A 20-year-old girl, even back then without social media and stuff, she may leave the guy, but she's not going to not talk to her friends about it. How many
1: people do you know that have right. taken off with no, like you just said, with no word
0: to anyone? It's I mean, so it, rare. Happens, it happens occasionally, but anyway... Charlotte Riley knew Amy wouldn't leave Beezer and Kit Kat. Mm. When Charlotte went back to look around the apartment at Joey's invitation, she saw Amy's GED study books all spread out on the desk, her checkbook, her ID, and other things she wouldn't have left behind. Joey let Charlotte take all of Amy's stuff home with her. On August 20th, five days after Amy disappeared, Charlotte Riley was reading the paper and saw that Stephen Deshane, 32, had been arrested at his mother's house in Laconia, And he was charged with committing three rapes in Manchester in June and July. Gee, Mike, look at this, Charlotte said to her husband. Have they ever connected Amy with that? And again, this was only five days after Amy had disappeared. At the time, Charlotte didn't even know Amy had been raped earlier that month. Mm. Also, she and the rest of Manchester didn't know until that article was in the paper that there had been a serial rapist running (laughs) around the city. The Manchester police detective assigned to the case didn't call Amy's family until a week and a half after Joey made the missing person report. So it was after Charlotte saw that in the paper. He left a message saying Amy was apparently still working, that they'd been told by Labor Ready that she'd shown up to work after she'd supposedly disappeared. And he suggested Hmm. that she might just be staying with other friends rather than Joey Pelletier. Charlotte called the detective back and brought up the rapist who'd just been arrested. They poo-pooed her questions about it. they do. After all, DeShane's hadn't killed anyone. He just threatened to with a knife. Oh, okay. And they pointed out Amy's rapists were two Hispanic guys. And that's the first time Charlotte found out that Amy had been raped just a couple of weeks before. Just how
1: would they know that
0: he didn't kill anyone because they hadn't
1: found anyone? You know what I mean?
0: He's a rapist. so Preaching to the choir, baby. Yeah, okay. And on that topic, the fact that those rapists were not DeShane doesn't mean DeShane couldn't have done something to Amy. The fact that the guys who raped her April, rape, I mean, August Oh, 9th. she already got raped. Right, so, she so she's that's her go. quota <laughs> for the summer or whatever. But police still didn't really think anyone had done anything to Amy anyway. Charlotte also called Labor Ready after she got off the phone with the police and found out Amy hadn't been to work since August 14th, hmm. the day before she disappeared. She told the police, you know, that they had been wrong about that, but they didn't seem too concerned. Detective Nick Willard, who later became Manchester's chief, says 10 years later on the swamp murder show that mix-up was embarrassing but he doesn't really explain what happened as you'll see there's a pattern in this of the police just not giving a shit but later they didn't want to admit that i also think it's interesting that they had passed the missing person report off to the hillsborough county sheriff's department guy But it was a Manchester police detective calling Charlotte Riley and not telling her that Hillsborough County was handling it. And I think the Hillsborough County guy just went through like a rudimentary thing and said, you know, this kid, she's a street kid. She had her license revoked, you know, a while back. She drinks, blah, blah, blah. So she probably just took off. The show makes it look like the cops were on top of Amy's disappearance from the beginning, but they were not. After those couple of check-ins by the detective, like I said, it seems like nothing more was done as far as Amy's missing person case went. Charlotte Riley begged the Manchester police to add Amy to the National Crime Information Center database, NCIC, operated by the FBI. Until a missing person is listed there by law enforcement, they cannot be listed on the National Center for Missing Adults, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the Child Protection Education of America website, or any other official missing person website. They have to be listed by law enforcement on NCIC versus missing. Manchester police refused to, telling Charlotte that Amy didn't qualify, but they wouldn't explain why she didn't qualify. Meanwhile, Amy's sightings kept popping up among friends yeah. and acquaintances, though no one who knew her well had seen her, and none of the people who claimed to have seen her actually talked to her. Amy's friend, Crystal Valier kept hearing the rumors, including one that Amy was working at Dairy Queen. She started going there just to see, but never saw Amy there. Shannon McCarthy, manager of Hog's Troth, said she heard that a woman who was a customer at Spider Bite Body Piercing on hmm. Elm Street in Manchester was telling people there... People think I'm missing and they have posters up all over about me. Somebody from the union leader later called Spider Bite and they wouldn't comment on that. About three months after Amy disappeared, the police did an about face and listed Amy with NCIC. But oh. they did it quietly. So quietly, most people didn't even know what had happened. They didn't issue a news release or notify the media or put a missing person notice in the paper or anything like fuck? that. Here's why I think they did it. Let me tell you and see if you agree with me. Okay. Apparently, and this is a little complicated, so stick with me. Apparently, an inmate at the New Hampshire State Prison or in one of the county jails named Jason Bridges, or at least that was his name on Swamp Murders, and this was (laughs) only on Swamp Murders, it was not in any newspaper story, was arrested either late that summer or early that fall and decided he wanted to get out of jail card. So he told someone official that he had information about Joseph Pelletier. He didn't say he had information about Amy Riley or anything like that. Remember, this was before those remains were found. Yes. He told Detective Nick Willard that he was in a Manchester apartment with Joe Pelletier and his buddy Tyler the night Amy disappeared and that Joey and Tyler took off for a few hours. When they came back, Joey had a red stain on his shirt and was acting all weird. Even though Bridges on the show is a skinny white guy and it's in New Hampshire, had an accent that's half southern half urban black guy (laughs) which is laughable he should have had like a new hampshire accent but anyway (laughs) police gave bridges a polygraph and he passed the show makes it seem as though this happened much later after spoiler amy's remains were found but i don't think it did happen after her remains were found For instance, the inmate doesn't say, as I said, that he had information about Amy Riley's murder. He says he has information about Joe Pelletier. And I know there are so many flaws in the show that that may seem a little point. I think it happened the fall after Amy disappeared and that they added her to NCIC so they could begin to build a case against Joey. Because if they just thought she was missing of her own volition, that would hurt the case in court if they wanted to nail him. Exactly. I think at that point they started investigating Joey. And I think the thing that tipped off the investigation was the jailhouse snitch. They eventually scheduled a polygraph with Joe, but this was after months of investigation. On the show, it happens right away, but in real life, it didn't happen until March 2004. After they added Amy to NCIC late that fall, they started talking to people. An investigator finally called Barbara Blake, Amy's friend from Chester, the older woman with the horse Mm -hmm. farm, They'd never called her before. Nobody had. She talked to Amy all the time, which Joey had told them that Amy's always talking to Barbara. The last time she talked to her was a couple days before Amy had disappeared. Barbara hadn't heard from Amy since. And as I said, she hadn't heard from police until and Can one.
1: I ask you, did Amy
0: still have a horse? And was the horse at Barbara's? Do I you don't know? I don't know. Nobody said. Okay. Blake told the investigator that Amy had to be dead because she always contacted her when she was in trouble and she said Amy would never leave her pets behind. A constant theme. Meanwhile, that winter, a serial rapist was attacking teenage girls as they walked home from school events Uh. in the city. At least three rapes in November and December, and several attempted abductions and rapes of teenage girls walking home in the dark, Mm -hmm. you know, how early it gets dark that time of year, from cheerleading practice and other things. This is not to be confused with the serial rapist of the summer who've been arrested. There are plenty of rapes to go around, aside from those. I won't go into a litany, but you get the picture. The descriptions of assailants were varied white men, Hispanic men, black men, singles, doubles, you name it. Police did ramp up patrols around the city's three public and one Catholic high school after school because of the high school attacks for a little while. But also in various articles that I read in the Two or so years, this Amy stuff was going on in the union leader. Anytime rapes came up, if it wasn't one guy matching all the descriptions, it wasn't a serious issue, just business as usual, and that women (sighs) should be more careful.
1: Yeah, it's always our
0: fault. Yep. Finally, on March 4th, 2004, seven months after Amy was reported missing, this small item appeared in the union leader. Police are asking for the public's help in locating a young woman who has been missing for nearly seven months. Hmm. Amy Riley, 20, of 315 Cedar Street, was last seen leaving the Hog's trough Saloon, 342 Lincoln Street, between 10 and 10.30 p.m. on August 15th, which is wrong. It was more like 8 o'clock. She was in the company of a white man, about five foot nine who had blonde hair and was wearing a light summer sweater and a black and white button-down shirt.
1: Hmm.
0: Riley is 5'4", weighs 120 pounds, and has a tattoo of two dice on her left shoulder, as well as numerous piercings. Her hair is blonde with purple highlights. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a black silk skirt, a black half shirt, and black combat boots. Anyone with information concerning Riley's disappearance or whereabouts, or about the man she was with, is asked to contact Manchester Police Detectives at 668 blah 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 or Manchester Crime Line. I think it's interesting... That despite the fact that one person who saw Amy after she left the bar, the one who supposedly saw her arguing with, but not leaving with, a guy, she consistently said he had brown hair, but the description says blonde, and also gets the time wrong by about two hours. Yeah. It makes me wonder where all this came from, if anywhere, and shows the lack of attention to detail. Apparently, probably after that appeared, the union leader interviewed Amy's parents, but I can't find the article. There are references later to an interview earlier this year. And the reason I think it would have had to have been after this item appeared at March 4th is because I can't imagine they would have run that without referencing the interview, unless it was some editor who wasn't paying attention, which also happens. In that interview, which was later quoted, Mike Riley, Amy's father, said, she just disappeared into thin air. Charlotte Riley said, I pray dearly that she is alive but since so much time is going by, the odds aren't very good. There's no use of her social security card, no evidence that she's even out there. My hope is that she is well and will contact someone if she is, but what else can you say other than you hope and you pray daily? She mm. feared her daughter might have been drugged and trafficked. Mm. Her Charlotte also said she thinks police didn't make Amy's disappearance a priority because she disappeared from a bar in contrast to Maura Murray, who had just disappeared two weeks before that item appeared, and Maura, as you know, disappeared after crashing her car on a remote western New Hampshire road on a winter night. Charlotte said, but Amy's a person. She had a family, people who love her. If it wasn't the missing notice on March 4th that spurred the interview with the Rileys, I would say it was the media frenzy after Maura disappeared on February 9th, because there was a story in the paper every single day, for a week like i said if you want to know more about maura murray episode eight (laughs) charlotte riley also later said particularly after the february 2004 disappearance of maura murray that she tried to get media attention but couldn't i don't disbelieve her but at least at the papers i've worked at and i was at the union leader at the time but didn't have anything to do with decisions made about this case and story and i don't remember any discussions about it But in general, at papers I worked, including the union leader, the first thing a reporter would do if somebody calls up and says, my daughter is missing, would you do a story? Is call the police. If the police say, nah, don't bother, there's a lot of reporters or editors who would drop it. Some reporters would still pursue it. I can't say that's what happened. But if Mrs. Riley tried to get the union leader to do anything, it's likely that's what did. Or one of the reporters called the police because the reporters were friendly with various cops. And a cop said, yeah, you know, we think it's the boyfriend. So she's not really missing. And when we nail him, we'll give you the scoop, which happens too. That makes sense. And police did think it was the boyfriend. By now, Joey had moved to Lincoln, as I said, 90 minutes north of Manchester, but a Manchester detective that March went up to Lincoln to interview him. And they set up an appointment then for Joey to take his polygraph. So this is before those those were before those remains were found. And that's why I think in November, they put her on NCIC. Then they investigated to get their case set up before they gave Joey a polygraph. My advice to Joey, don't do it and get a lawyer. Unfortunately, Joey did not ask me for my advice. I wouldn't Poly- take a
1: polygraph.
0: The polygraph was scheduled for April 29th, 2004. Which Your birthday! My 43rd birthday. Aww. But then, on April 24th, the Welches came across the skeletal remains of Stark Lane. Charlotte Riley was sure the remains were Amy, mm. because the clothing that was found was what her daughter was wearing the night she disappeared. Quote, I truly believe my daughter died the day she left the barn." Yeah. Riley said. Police were waiting for the medical examiner and dental ID before they officially ID'd the remains, and that took a couple days. The ID was finally made at a news conference on April 26, two days after the remains were found. Attorney General Peter Heed said this case is being treated as a suspicious death. Mm. Less than two months later, by the way, Heed would resign amid charges of sexual harassment. But that's a story for another day. And all I can remember is some grainy photo somebody had of him standing on a table with his shirt off, waving it above his head at some party.
1: That sounds
0: like fun. They'd ID'd Amy by dental records. She was too decomposed to ID any other Mm. way. Senior Assistant Attorney General Will Delker said. He said the medical examiner's office couldn't determine the cause of death, and forensic experts who have experience dealing with decomposed bodies are being consulted. By the way, in swamp Murders, this is depicted as a quirky, very strange, donut-eating medical examiner, a la those stupid TV shows, getting all excited about bug larvae and stuff, stuff, but that didn't happen. Manchester Police Chief John Jaskolka said that witnesses reported seeing Amy leaving the saloon with a white male with slicked-back black hair Oh, approximately geez. 35 to 40 years of age approximately five foot eight wearing a white shirt and dark pants i'm like what happened to the blonde guy in the march 4th notice was that just people a get note? their
1: friggin stories straight
0: jess kolka said the information we have is that she left willingly mm. Jess kolka yeah. and delker said investigators have interviewed a number of riley's friends and people who were in the hog's trough the night she disappeared Jess Kolka also confirmed they could find no one who'd had contact with Amy since the night she disappeared. And they could have known that seven or eight months before, but whatever. By now, police, I'm sure, realized how bad they looked as far as not investigating her disappearance more thoroughly back in August. And they had a lot of spin controlling to do. Hmm. Just Kolka said that police began investigating Amy's disappearance August 16th after Pelletier reported her missing. This was not something she was likely to do, and he means voluntarily disappear. In answer to reporters' questions, who knew that was a load of crap, just Kolka said he agreed that once it is clear someone has not disappeared voluntarily, the person should be promptly listed in the NCIC. Mm-hmm. The next day, through a police spokesman, because he hadn't fully answered, and I'm sure reporters were calling wanting to, more after the redditor said to him didn't he even answer the question so call and find out just colca said even though she wasn't entered in the ncic system that did not preclude us from initiating an investigation and officers continued to follow up throughout the time that amy lynn was missing bullshit yeah, i call bullshit In chester amy's hometown those of us who knew her are sad said brian gibbons a 21 year old construction worker and friend of amy She helped me out and through a lot of rough times. He said he lost track of her about two months before she disappeared. Some people in Chester, though, despite its smallness, hadn't known she was missing. Joe Massani, owner of Spallet's General Store in Chester Center, said, nobody in town even knew anybody was missing. No one heard about it. We Hmm. sit in here in New Hampshire and hear about all these missing girls out west, and we had one here and never had anyone heard that there was a missing person. Hmm. One thing that puzzled her friends was the guy who'd found her, Floyd Welch, said the remains had green socks. Her friend Crystal Vallier said, I thought that was strange because Amy never wore socks. Every one of her friends said the same thing. We all thought that can't be Amy because if Amy was wearing socks, they would be black. We never knew her to wear socks. She didn't even have any socks. Hmm. Joey Pelletier said he couldn't remember whether Amy was wearing socks the night he dropped her off at the Hogs Troth Saloon or not. She had combat boots on. But he said she barely ever wore socks and only owned a black pair. She doesn't own green socks and neither do I, he said. My thought is that it was discoloration because of her boots or maybe even it was her boots with stuff growing on them. If they were made out of leather and had been under the snow and wet all winter long. As with many, 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 many other things to do with this case, police didn't bother to clear it up. The reporter asked Will Dulker, the assistant attorney general, who was handling the case for the state at this point, about it, and he wouldn't comment. The only reason I say that's an issue is because it's just one more unnecessarily confusing thing for people who are trying to sort it out. I know they like to hold back info so they can figure out who did it. You know, the guy who has the information that they never yeah. released publicly, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, give me a break. Green socks. Just tell people, no, they weren't socks. It was discoloration. In some good old-fashioned journalism of the kind I used to enjoy at the union leader and haven't seen since I left, the reporters weren't going to wait around for the state officials to tell them shit. Senior AAG Will Dulker had said outside experts would be called in to examine the remains, but Hannett said what kind, so the union leader found some experts and asked them. Charles J. Walsh, a former FBI agent and evidence expert who teaches police officers how to evaluate crime scenes and collect evidence, said that even though many months have passed since Amy probably died, With the body exposed to the heat of summer, then to winter freezes and thaws, police will likely get physical evidence from the body and the crime scene. He said, a forensic anthropologist might pick up something a forensic pathologist wouldn't pick up. Mm. He said there might be anatomical damage to bones or other clues. The fact is, if it happened in August, there are things you can't retrieve. But there certainly are things you can look for, such as the byproducts of insect infestations. Mm. He said if pupa pods are found, they will help pinpoint the time of death. Hmm. Thomas Hammond, a criminal justice professor at St. Anselm College, said that investigators may learn far more by probing into Amy's personal life and talking to people who know her and her habits. I doubt very much that it's going to be solved with forensic evidence, Hammond said. It's going to take good, hard police work, extensive (laughs) interviewing of acquaintances, family, and friends. I have great confidence in the Manchester Police. Well, I don't know about that. Maureen says, gee, too bad they didn't do more of that. I was going to say, that ship kind of sailed. Back in August. I'm going to tell you right now that forensic evidence didn't solve the case. If they found out anything, it's lost to history as far as poopa pods and larvae go still Hmm. weirdly on swamp murders nick willard the detective talks about blowfly evidence without ever saying if there is any in this case he just talks about it generally he looks very uncomfortable talking about it so maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the case and i think they had him talk about it just so they could have the scenes with the quirky donut eating Hmm. young female medical examiner because at the time you know because that was 10 years ago and All the crime shows on TV had quirky young female medical examiners. Though, given all the other bullshit on that show, you'd think that Willard would have breezed right through no matter what. In any case, issues with the investigation were definitely beginning to come clear. And I mean in real life, not on swamp murders. Police now had three different descriptions that they gleaned from their eight months after the fact interviews. The first one was the one in the March 4th news release, a white man, about 5'9", blonde hair and wearing a light summer sweater and black and white button-down shirt. The second is a well-dressed white man with dark, slick-backed hair, wearing a white button-down collared shirt and dark pants. The third is a white male in his early 20s with dark, possibly brown hair. About five foot five to five foot seven, weighing between 150 and 170 pounds and wearing a burgundy or maroon jacket or sweatshirt. Those could be most of the male population know. of Manchester, New Hampshire. There was also a composite sketch from about a month after Amy disappeared that police hadn't said anything about publicly. Somebody tipped off union leader reporter Kathy Marchaki, who asked David Ruff, the assistant AG who was now in charge of the case about it. Ruff acknowledged a composite existed, but he said that it came out of an interview of a cook at the hog's trough on a matter that didn't have anything to do with Amy's case, and I guess the cook brought up, oh, by the way, I saw blah, 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 and it wasn't made public because there was no evidence of a link to her disappearance. Hmm. He said... Because the interview was generated as part of the background investigation on this case, it's still part of the case file, even though we think it's part of the file that doesn't bear any relevance to her disappearance. How would they know? Right. Put a pin in that because I'm going to talk about it later. Okay. Okay. I have something to say about it. But for right now, I'll say, take that for what you will. But I wonder what it looked like and who it was of. Since all the descriptions are so similar, and all of them could probably be Joey Pelletier, who the union leader only described once, and they described him as having brown hair and being stocky. Any of those could kind of be him, that no no pictures to be had. I wondered, is that composite radically different, so it doesn't fit their storyline? But there's even more I want to say about it, but I have to say it at the end. Delker... The other senior AAG said they interviewed dozens of people and had gotten dozens of tips since Amy's remains were found. He said the publicity has prompted people to contact police. People are calling and that they have information on the case, and police are in the process of interviewing those people. We are certainly looking into everyone who said they saw her in the time after she was reported missing. We are talking with those people and following up on that. He said investigators haven't ruled anything in or out with respect to the time of death. If you kind of listen to that quote, basically he's saying a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. They also got Amy's ex-husband, Marcus Ross, to come up from Florida to talk. And they questioned Joey Pelletier's two friends from Londonderry who he had hung out with that night. None of these people were talked to in the initial missing person investigation. Yeah, why would they be? But no one, of course, was as interesting to the police as Joey Pelletier. Hmm. Police and Joey kept the date for the April 29th polygraph. The session lasted three hours, and it will not surprise you that they told Joey he'd failed it. Despite the fact that Joey said he didn't kill Amy or know anything about it, Joey told the union leader, they told me I did it. They said, we know that you did it, Joe. You should just come forward now. And I said I didn't do it. He also voluntarily gave them a DNA sample. And I'll say right now, there's never been any indication that DNA was found on the remains or anything. After the polygraph outside the police station, he told reporter Kathy Marchaki, I got nothing to hide, absolutely nothing to hide. And he sobbed in his father's arms. Joey Sr. said the police told him he'd missed Hmm. one question. They asked, did he feel he may have had some impact on her death or something like that? And he, Joey, said no. And it spiked. The reporter, Kathy Marchaki, gets the Journalist of the Year Award for them putting all this into context. And I'm going to read the next few paragraphs of her April 30th, 2004 union leader story, because it's something you never, ever, ever read or hear, except from us, of course. Here's what Kathy wrote. Polygraph results are not admissible in court and often are regarded as questionable, said Manchester attorney Richard McNamara. Hmm. Moreover, that Pelletier said police told him he failed the test doesn't mean necessarily that he had. Uh Police are permitted under the Constitution to lie to people they interview, Manchester criminal defense attorney Kathy Green said, speaking generally and not specifically (laughs) about this case. Quote, they can lie about their investigation, they can lie about the results of their investigation, and that's generally held to be a permissible interrogation technique, Green said. Assistant Attorney General David Ralph wouldn't confirm or deny whether Pelletier took a polygraph or comment on the fact Joey said he was told he failed it. Meanwhile, New Hampshire Sunday news reporter Sean Wickham did a story a few days later looking at the string of serial rapes and attempted rapes in the city the summer before and whether Amy's rape and her disappearance less than a week later could have been related. This is not to be confused with the serial rapes of high school girls in November and December, which no one was ever arrested for. Oh, or all the, non, all the assorted non-linked rapes that had happened. Anyway, Stephen Deshane was arrested on August 19, 2003, four days after Amy disappeared and he was arrested for three rapes that had happened between June 8th and July 25th of 2003. Manchester Deputy Police Chief Richard O'Leary told Sean that whenever a crime occurs, it's a basic (laughs) investigative method to look at similar cases, but it would be inappropriate to comment on possible suspects in Riley's murder. Assistant Attorney Ruff was also asked if they looked at the rapes when they investigated Amy's disappearance. I think that's a big fat no, that's Maureen saying, but Ruff said... Ruff said, I can't say anything that might compromise the investigation. Oh, I'm sure. We haven't ruled anybody in or ruled anybody out. We're still actually looking for the public to help. And just a reminder, they didn't look at Jack shit after Amy disappeared. And aside from looking at Joey Pelletier as a possible suspect, didn't start investigating it as anything but a missing person until after Amy's body was found. Sean, she's a female Sean, by the way. Not a oh, male okay. One asked Ruff about the discrepancies in all the descriptions of the guys supposedly seen with Amy after she left the bar, most of which police gathered eight months after the fact. Ruff said, all the descriptions are people that we'd like to talk to, if anyone matches any of them. We can only pass on what witnesses tell us, obviously, when we're looking for a suspect. We can't reject any of them. For all we know, there's one or more people she was with. And I think it's very possible that the descriptions are the same guy. As you know, eyewitness testimony is unreliable. And most of these, as I said, were given to the police eight months after the fact. The woman who supposedly saw Amy and a guy arguing across the street gave a description, as I said, to a Hillsborough County deputy sheriff shortly after Amy disappeared. But she didn't talk to Manchester police until after Amy's remains were found. And apparently... I don't know if the Hillsborough County deputy ever passed her information or anything to Manchester police because nobody talked (sighs) to her. Assistant A.G. Delker said about the descriptions, I don't believe any one of them are being discarded. He said, we haven't identified those people at this point. We are still in the process of trying to determine specifically who she was with when she was last seen. He said, an arrest did not appear imminent. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile Dan Brennan the detective who investigated the previous summer's rapes including Amy's said he didn't think there was a link between them and her murder back in June 2003 he'd linked the two June rapes but another detective had been assigned to the July 24th one and it was many weeks later after Amy disappeared that Brennan happened upon a report on it and realized that it was the same person who did the two June rapes now Manchester isn't Los Angeles or New York You'd think the detectives would compare rape reports and know if one guy was looking at a serial rapist. But what do I know?
1: Also, if there's a victim of rape and then five days later she's missing. Right. I don't know. Wouldn't you?
0: Yes, you would. You would think. I don't think it says much for the level of attention rapes were getting in the city. Oh, well, yeah. 20 years ago. Or probably now. Right. Brennan said he knew the three rapes were linked because the MO was exactly the same. It was in the same area and the type of things he wanted to do with the victims, the knife, and the whole business. It's yeah. a good thing that he saw the report of that July 24th rape because the cops actually talked to the rapist, Stephen Deshane, that day on July 24th. But almost a month later, he hadn't been charged with anything. It's not clear what the investigation of the July 24th rape entailed at the time, but my guess is not much. Because what are you going to do? He said, she said, right? Brennan stumbled upon the report, as I said, nearly a month later. On August 19th, four days after Amy disappeared, he brought his two victims from June separately to the Spruce Street apartment where the July 24th woman had been raped. And they ID'd it as the place that they were raped. At the time, they didn't know what the apartment was or what street they were on. He also had them look at photo lineups on August 19th and both picked out Deshane. Deshane was arrested that night, as I said, at his mother's home in Laconia, which is about an hour north of Manchester. He'd been evicted by then from his Spruce Street apartment (laughs) in Manchester. So a guy who'd committed at least three rapes and tried some others between June 8th and July 24th had another month on the loose. Still, Detective Dan Brennan told Sean he didn't believe Amy's August 9th rape was related to the DeShane ones because her assailants were two Spanish-speaking men and had a different M.O. They Hmm. pulled her into a car and brought her to an apartment and raped her. And here's what DeShane did, and just a warning, this describes the next few minutes I'll be describing attacks. If you don't want to listen to it, you may want to skip ahead. It's kind of a tangent, but I think it's important to understand how crimes against women were treated and are treated in general and certainly in Amy's case. On June 8, the first reported victim left Mike's Pub and Grub, 155 Lake Ave, and was walking home on Lake Ave when DeShane asked her if she wanted to join him for a beer. She agreed, and they walked for a while before coming to an apartment building that looked like the first floor was gutted and being renovated. She and the man went up to the second floor and into his apartment where he pulled out a knife and said, we're not here for an expletive deleted beer. Take your expletive deleted clothes off. And my guess is the expletive that was deleted was fuck. Yeah. He sense. held the knife to her throat as he told her to undress. So she did. And he raped her. He told her that he'd been hired to beat her up and drop her in the river and for her to stop crying and be happy that he didn't carry out those instructions. so afterward he escorted her out of the apartment and told the woman she was free to go she came upon a cop after walking around the streets for a while and reported the rape but she couldn't identify where the apartment was on june 25th a woman who left mike's pub and grub around 1 a.m was grabbed by a man on the sidewalk who pulled out a knife and said you decide whether you want to live or die He walked her around the streets for about 15 minutes, she thinks, to confuse her about where they were going, and then he took her to a room on the second floor of an apartment house and raped her. They left together, and once outside, he walked with her for a short distance and then left her. She kept walking until she saw a police officer, flagged him down, and reported she'd been raped, but she couldn't identify where the apartment was, just like the first woman. A week later, she was admitted to the psychiatric unit of Elliott Hospital, a result of the attack. On July 24th, around 1.15 a.m., a woman leaving Flo's Bar and Grill on Lake Avenue, which is just down the street from Mike's Pub and grub, Ooh. was approached by a man who asked for a cigarette. When he got close, he pulled out a knife, got behind her, and held it to her throat. He walked her to an apartment and ordered her to remove her clothes. She pleaded with him not to hurt her, and he told her to stop crying. She asked him to use a condom, but he refused. (sighs) After DeShane raped her, he escorted her down the stairs. He said, even if you do call the police, they won't arrest me. Once free, the woman ran to a payphone and called the police. She, unlike the two others, was able to identify the apartment building. I'm not sure why this rape was handled differently than the two in June, since Manchester isn't so big that the other cops working that night shift and the detective wouldn't have been aware that a similar rape to the two in June had happened at the same time of night. I think they just didn't give a shit. The police went to the apartment, the woman had said, and DeShane was sitting on the front steps drinking a beer. They told him a woman had said he raped her. He said it was consensual and she started (sighs) yelling rape when she asked for money and he wouldn't give her any. He obviously wasn't charged or anything at the time. It wasn't until Dan Brennan Came upon the report and connected the rape to the two June ones that Deshane was arrested. Two June women could not identify him or the apartment. That's the July twenty so... fourth women did, and Deshane was basically right when he told her the cops wouldn't arrest him because if Dan Brennan hadn't been working on those other two rapes, then nothing. Yeah, would it's to. like they don't even her word isn't even right. It's like what are you going to do? She said she was raped. He said it was consensual. Yeah, you know, you yeah. know the victims. Testified at separate trials. Of course, Deshane testified in his own defense, and he said it was consensual, and that they wanted drugs or money, and got upset when he wouldn't give them to them. At his trial on the third victim's rape, two years later, he changed his story to say that she went with him because she thought he'd give her drugs, and then when he didn't, she got upset with him and told oh, him she'd please. tell the police she was raped. He told investigators that because of that, it wasn't a hundred percent consensual. <sighs> He was sentenced in 2006 to 50 to 150 years in prison, and the judge said if he could have given him more time, he would have. DeShane obviously wasn't the only rapist in town, but he was the most famous one that summer. Now back to Amy. Manchester police and the state attorney general's office would not publicly discuss any potential suspects in Amy's murder, including whether DeShane's was one, as I said earlier. On May 7th, 2004, the discovery of remains near Mount Kearsarge in northern New Hampshire, spoiler, it wasn't Maura Murray, became an opportunity for Amy's mother, Charlotte Riley, to join Fred Murray, Maura's father, and Bruce and Kelly Maitland of East Franklin, Vermont, whose daughter, Brianna, is 17 was last seen on March 19th, 2004. They all joined together in a press conference to bring awareness to missing and murdered women in New Hampshire and Vermont and urge police to do more and take reports of missing women more seriously. No shit. Amy's remains were cremated and a memorial service was held on May 23rd at St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in Hampstead, New Hampshire, another suburb in the area of Darien, Londonderry. Charlotte Riley said that anyone who wanted to attend was welcome, and about 300 people did. Instead of flowers, she asked the people make donations, in Amy's memory, to the Center for Missing Adults in Phoenix, Arizona. The police also, that day, upped the Manchester Crime Line reward to its maximum $5,000. It had been $2,500. Senior Assistant Attorney General Will Delker said police continued to speak with witnesses and analyze information. Mm, Yeah.
1: They were well, analyzing Yeah, analyzed
0: their ass. Quote, I certainly don't doubt that the amount of time that has passed will make it more difficult to solve this case, but we're still hopeful that we will be able to do that, he said. Manchester Deputy Police Chief Richard O'Leary said, I'm confident. I'm upbeat. We are certainly going to go out there a thousand percent, and we will continue to do so. Charlotte Riley wasn't so sure, given the length of time that had lapsed. I am not optimistic that there is a pending arrest, she said. She was right. As summer wore on, not much happened with the investigation. On August 4th, 2004, the union leader had the headline, police remain hopeful they'll find killer. And I'm like, great, good for them. Delker (coughs) said, as with all older homicide cases, we're hopeful. But I think this one has real potential of being solved. We certainly aren't at a dead end with it. Deputy Police Chief O'Leary said, A lot of stuff occurred around a popular bar that night. It was an active night. We want people to search their recollection and come forward with any information they have. But he added, There are other avenues we are pursuing. I hope so. He wouldn't elaborate. But Manchester Police continued to pursue Joey Pelletier's friends and family. Joey had stopped talking to them.
1: I don't blame him. With
0: no breaks in the case, in January... 2005, eight months after her remains were found, and a year and a half after she disappeared, Joey, back in Manchester for the holidays from Lincoln, reconnected with a high school girlfriend who lived in Minnesota who was visiting. They spent the month hanging out. About two days before her flight home, Manchester police paid her a visit and told her that she couldn't leave the state until she allowed them to question her, Uh. which she did. They told her that they know it was Joey Pelletier who killed Amy and they were going to do whatever it took to bring him down. Later, when asked about this, Assistant Attorney General Ruff wouldn't confirm or deny that it happened. Hmm. He said, I know we interviewed Pelletier at length a couple of times. We haven't had any contact with him in the near past. I can tell you we interviewed people he associated with more than once. Because of the importance of this case, we have to be sure that someone is telling the truth or someone is not telling the truth. The more bullshit and just a memo for anyone who's out there who finds themselves in a similar position as that young woman the police cannot keep you from flying out of the state to go home unless you're under arrest
1: and i would consult an attorney yes if you have to
0: on april 24th 2005 a year after amy's remains were found The New Hampshire Sunday News ran an anniversary story. Charlotte Riley told reporter Sean Wickham that the family would mark the day privately. She said, believe me, there's a day that goes by that we don't think of her. I just try to remember the good times, the joys that we had with her. Those will never be taken away by anyone. She said she and her husband are disturbed by the fact that whoever did it is still out there. That's a very scary issue. They did it once, they can do it again, Mm -hmm. she said. Amy's disappearance, the experience Charlotte had with the police after it, and her murder and the investigation made Charlotte an activist. For the last year, she'd been active on efforts to create uniform police procedures in cases of missing adults. She said, that's what my heart and soul are going into. Because police wouldn't enter Amy into the NCIC database at first, and they would have to have dental records in there, so if... Her body were found in another state. They could identify her. Charlotte was afraid her body would turn up somewhere and that Amy would be forever labeled a Jane Doe. She said, I swore what happened to us with the NCIC situation would not happen to another person. She managed to get a bill passed in the state legislature that requires a missing person report in the NCIC computerized database immediately under certain conditions that include... The person missing is disabled or senile and thus could be a danger to himself or others. Circumstances indicate the disappearance may not be voluntary after a catastrophe or when there is reasonable concern for the person's safety. And I will say, though, that police determine if it's not voluntary, and I'm not sure they would have taken Amy's disappearance any more seriously under those rules because they assume Amy voluntarily left. Charlotte said... Something positive has to come out of something negative here. God has given me the strength somehow to deal with it. She said that she was hurtened by the changes in how missing persons cases were being handled, both in New Hampshire and elsewhere. She said, I think it's more on everybody's radar. Every person, whether it's a prostitute or a young lady who's a college graduate, deserves to be looked for. They're human beings. Stolen cars get reported immediately. Why not a human life? Yes. At the Hog's Trough, manager Shannon McCarthy posts a reminder on the club's online calendar. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the discovery of Amy Lynn's body. Please think of her and reflect on the senseless tragedy that took her young life and pray for her family. They also planned a small tribute at the bar. In a coincidence, Fear of Flying, the band that was playing the night Amy disappeared, was also playing on the anniversary night. Friend Janelle Robb said that she was bothered that news reports focused so much on Amy's goth appearance. I'm sure Janelle would have loved the Swamp Murders episode. Mm. Janelle said, She means so much to me. I just miss her so much. She was different. She was funny. She was beautiful. She was just really nice to be around. We could talk together and really connect. Manchester Deputy Police Chief O'Leary said he also saw that attitude about Amy's appearance, the goth thing, but police sure didn't share it. It doesn't matter who the victim is, rich or poor, social status, mm-hmm. none of that matters when it comes to the victim of a homicide. In the very simplest terms, nobody has the right to take a life, and too bad they didn't feel that way about missing people. I, know. I mean, yes, a homicide they're investigating, but they definitely had that attitude when she was reported missing in August 2003. Mm-hmm. O'Leary said the murder case remained very much open and active. Quite simply, their daughter is a human being. And as far as our investigators, she's not going to disappear. She will not be forgotten. And it's progressing slowly, but I can assure you, slow progress is better than no progress. Is this impossible to solve? Absolutely not. Are we hopeful? Absolutely. <sighs> He said the investigators working on Amy Riley's murder are determined to solve it. I think sometimes the harder the case, the harder we work, he said. I hope so. Hmm, yeah, okay. Although I guess I should be happy that they care all of a sudden. I wonder if Charlotte Riley's constant reminder about how they didn't for quite a while had anything to do with that (laughs) gung-ho attitude now, a year after her remains were found. When asked what it would take to solve the case, O'Leary said, I think it takes a friend or an acquaintance with knowledge to be able to stand up with a backbone and provide us with information. He said history would indicate it's possible investigators already have interviewed the murderer. Mm -hmm. People and relationships can change. He also said, I believe it's very difficult on your conscience, no matter who you are, no matter how bad you are. I believe an act like this, it changes a person. And those changes over time perhaps can come to our benefit. Jeffrey Streltson, chief of the homicide unit for the Attorney General's office, who's been in many of our episodes, said two prosecutors from the office are assigned to the investigation, which he said was ongoing. He said, with this type of case, the public doesn't see the work that's being done. Yeah, that's but Manchester is doing a lot of work on this case, and they have done a lot of work. They're moving forward on the case, but we're not at a stage to make an arrest. Well, that all changed a few weeks later. But it wasn't police work or people coming forward and information that solved the case, but a battered woman telling her story nearly a thousand miles away. Carrie Menard, 27, had had a tough time of it. She was chronically abused by her longtime partner, Curtis Yap, who is 10 years older. She had a drug habit. I don't know if she had one at this time, but she'd had it in the past. And her two children were in foster care out of state by 2004. While no newspaper article says it, and nobody in the case ever said it, the kids were, I believe, Curtis Yap's children. They were listed in Carrie's mother's obituary as and Yap, so I believe they were his kids. On March 13th, 2004, a little over a month before Amy's remains were found, Carrie Menard pleaded guilty to driving drunk on Elm Street in Manchester and was fined $420 and given a nine-month license revocation. She didn't pay the fine, though, and on June 26, 2004, she was stopped in Northampton, New Hampshire, in charge of failure to pay a fine and driving without a license, and $50 was added to what she owed, since she hadn't paid the fine when she was supposed to. <laughs> In July 2004, three months after Amy's remains were found, Carrie Menard was found in contempt of court for not paying the fine, and she was ordered to pay it by August 23rd or to go to jail for six months. Also in July 2004, she was indicted for fraud for collecting nearly $10,000 in welfare benefits, temporary assistance for needy families, which goes by the acronym TAMF, as well as food stamps, officially called SNAP. She claimed her two kids were living with her when they were in foster care. Around that time, Menard and Yap moved out of state, moved out of New Hampshire, first to Texas and then to North Carolina. And the timeline is confusing, but again, this was July 2004, three months after Amy's remains were found. Before they moved, Carrie Menard and Curtis Yap lived in an apartment at 4 Maple Street in Derry, New Hampshire, where they'd moved in February 2003 after living at 68 Orange Street in Manchester. They were still at the dairy address on July 19th, 2004, 11 months after Amy was killed and three after her remains were found. And I'll talk more about what happened in July 2004 a little later. On May 10th, 2005, more than a year after Amy's remains were found, Carrie Menard was arrested on New Hampshire fugitive charges at the Turning Point Union County battered women's shelter in monroe north carolina Ooh. a few days later manchester detectives nick willard and ryan grant flew down to pick her up
1: i didn't know they could arrest you if you were i mean that they could find you that easily but
0: you'll find out okay. what okay. Okay. happened okay. if you're saying what homicide Ooh. detectives fly 900 miles to pick up someone for welfare fraud that's just crazy you're right In fact, Carrie had been arrested on the same charges in North Carolina the previous October, but sat in jail for three months before being released. It's a confusing story, and we'll talk more about it in a few minutes once we get through this part. As far as her May 2005 arrest goes, Carrie had told someone who worked at the shelter, or maybe more than one person, her story as it related to Amy Riley's murder. Ooh. The shelter contacted local police who immediately called Manchester police. And just to explain for a second, her arrest on fugitive charges and the fraud thing is similar to Logan Clegg's and other arrests. They think someone is a suspect in a murder, but haven't had time yet to get an arrest warrant for that. But luckily they have a warrant for something else. Have something else. Here. Right. So they arrest and okay. hold the person for that other charge. So they have them where they want them as they complete the paperwork to arrest them for the murder. Okay, that makes sense. The Manchester police didn't say anything to the press or Amy's mother, and reporters found out about it on May 25th, four days after Carrie Menard had come back to the state with the detectives when she was arraigned in Hillsborough County Superior Court on a charge of fraudulently obtaining money and food stamps totaling $9,845.50. The charges were that she reported she was caring for two children who were not actually living under her care. Hmm. And again, it's her who is charged, not Curtis, even though they're his kids too. Judge Jillian Abramson set bail at $100,000 cash, which is pretty high for a welfare fraud case. Assistant County Attorney Jennifer Sandoval had asked for the high bail. Sandoval said that Menard had previously received welfare benefits for her children legitimately, but now they were no longer living with her. Again, no mention that curtis yap was apparently the father of the kids they weren't married but he and carrie had been living together for years and years and was frequently referred to in articles by the assistant ag will delker as her common law husband but i guess she was the one who must have filed for the stuff and so she was the one charged and also she was a woman (laughs) times do guys get never. I just thought never. about that. Never. For food That's stamps and yeah. no never. After her arraignment on the fraud charges, Manchester police charged Menard with Amy Riley's murder, and her arraignment on that charge was set for the following Monday. Assistant Attorney General Jess Strelzen would not elaborate to the press on what happened to Amy or why Menard was charged. He said, That is a subject of an ongoing investigation. Mm-hmm. Deputy Police Chief Richard O'Leary, like Strelson, wouldn't comment. He said, it doesn't make sense for us to comment on any investigation that we are working on. There's no reason to comment on an investigation while we were doing it. John Lang, a dairy neighbor of Carrie Menard and Curtis Yap, told reporters that police and an evidence collection crew in white suits searched the apartment in 4 Maple Street two days before Menard's arraignment, removing a nearly room-sized roll of carpet. Lang said he climbed the fire escape at the apartment building and looked inside (laughs) and saw a dark stain on the floor where the carpet had been cut away. He said, it looks like something soaked through it. A layer of the wooden floor had been removed by Friday, the day of the arraignment. Mm. Neighbor Linda Hornberger said the apartment had been empty for months, but it was previously occupied by a man and a woman who had two children. Of course, once it was reported that Carrie Menard had been arrested, people who knew Amy Riley were full of questions and speculation. Charlotte Riley, Amy's mother, told the union leader after Menard's arrest that she had not heard from police, despite the fact that Deputy Chief O'Leary had said a few weeks before that they were keeping her posted on everything. Um, And that's me pointing that out. She didn't point out that aspect of it. So much for all that blah, blah, blah. I'm sure they important. saw her
1: as a annoying
0: I'm sure they did. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I know police let victims' families know when they're gonna make an arrest so the family doesn't have to read about it in the paper. Yeah. This was not one of those times. Hmm. Still, Charlotte Riley told the union leader that she knew detectives Nick Willard and Ryan Grant were working hard to find out who murdered her daughter. She said Amy hung out with a lot of people from Derry in Londonderry. I'd like to think there's a connection. I'm relieved they found someone. Somebody is off the street that could do the same thing to somebody else. She added, it just keeps coming back to haunt us. Janelle Robb, Amy's friend, said that Detective Ryan Grant had telephoned her a couple months before Menard was arrested to ask for names of people who had known Riley. Menard's name wasn't one of the ones Janelle gave them. She said, I don't recall Amy knowing anyone like that. Janelle said she hadn't heard back from Grant after that phone call. Joey Pelletier said he was relieved police finally arrested someone. It wasn't him. Yeah, It was only a few months before that, that they had not let his friend leave Manchester until she talked to them. Pelletier heard about the arrest. He said he cried. He said, I was in shock. One of the worst things about this whole thing is when the police started blaming me. It's been very, very difficult. Oh, poor baby. I know. At least he's alive. He hadn't been able to escape it by moving to Lincoln either. Pelletier worked in an outdoors outfitting store. And just a few weeks before, a girl about 11 years old came up to him while he was working and said, are you a killer? (laughs) And (laughs) and Pelletier said, excuse me? And the girl said, my mom talked to a cop and the cop said you are a killer and we had to watch out for you. (laughs) Pelletier told the union leader my eyes started tearing up i couldn't deal with it i asked my co-workers to give me five to ten minutes and i had to go out back like janelle rob Pelletier had never heard of carrie menard or curtis yap he said i have no idea who these people are i'm curious really curious how the police hooked up with these people i want to know everything how amy hooked up with these people why did she do it how did it happen i think i have a right to know I think Amy's oh. parents and friends have a right to know every little detail, just so there is some closure. It's been really hard on all of us. Assistant Attorney General David Roth told the newspaper, at this point, based on what we know about what happened, we don't consider Pelletier a suspect. He wouldn't tell the union leader when Pelletier had been ruled out. My guess is that it was very, very, very recently, mm-hmm. like when they got Carrie Menard. Yeah. The arrest warrant and other case documents on Carrie Menard were under seal, so the details of what led to her arrest weren't public. Roof said, I can't comment on how the investigation progressed toward Miss Menard. No shit. I don't blame him for not wanting to say, because it's definitely not good propaganda for the investigators. The accounts of what happened with Carrie Menard in North Carolina are all over the place. I don't know if investigators deliberately made it confusing, or if they just couldn't get their own story straight, And then there's some sloppy reporting thrown in. And of course, 10 years later, Swamp Murders is a piece of revisionist fiction designed to make the cops look good. In any case, the newspaper continued to give the impression, which the cops allowed, that investigators had tracked Menard down to North Carolina through diligent police work. Oh, they're so good. This simply isn't true. As I said earlier, Carrie was first arrested on the fugitive warrant in North Carolina on october 15th 2004 that was months before they went down in may and got her okay i know it's confusing with each newspaper article this information was slightly different from what i can piece together this is what happened she somehow attracted the attention of police in north carolina people with fugitive warrants don't walk around with a big scarlet f on them unless they're on the FBI's most wanted list and their photos up somewhere. And even sometimes then they have to do something that makes police run them through NCIC. So Carrie did something that prompted police to notice her must've committed some violation or something. And they ran her name. She was arrested by Charlotte, North Carolina police at Charlotte Douglas international airport on October 15th on the fugitive warrant. And the union leader found all this out, by the way, by talking to North Carolina police, not Manchester police. (laughs) It's not clear if she was flying into North Carolina or out, but as police said, she had lived in North Carolina for a while. I think she may have been flying out given the sequence of events. My first thought was increased security after 9-11 had them run her for some reason since she was arrested at the airport. And you know how in those couple years after 9-11, it was really tight. If she did something outside the airport would they had let her go to the airport and then run her when she got there. I don't know, but it doesn't seem likely. One possibility is that she was leaving the country with Curtis Yap or leaving to join him. More on that later. Okay. In any case, when she was arrested on October 15, 2004, she was put in the Union County Jail, where she sat for a few months. The first article that mentioned this said she was in jail fighting extradition and got out on January twenty-first, two 2005, when she raised $10,000 cash bail. She did get out January 21st, 2005, but I don't think she was really fighting extradition, given how it played out. Just a quick note, the U.S. Constitution requires states, if another state asks, to return a fugitive who has committed a treason, felony, or other crime. That's a oh. quotes. This is done through what's called a governor's warrant. The governor from the state the fugitive is wanted in sends a request to the governor of the state where the fugitive was found of course the governors aren't sitting there like doing this themselves (laughs) the state seeking the fugitive has to pay to have the fugitive returned which would involve state law enforcement officials from either state or u.s marshals escorting them states weigh the severity of an offense with the cost of fetching a fugitive from somewhere if a fugitive waives extradition Usually they're asked if they want to do this when they're arraigned shortly after their arrest. The state usually has 30 days to pick them up, or the state can get the person to agree to return voluntarily. If the person doesn't waive extradition, then the governor's warrant is issued, and the state has a deadline on extraditing, which includes a court hearing, which is expensive, and other stuff. If that doesn't happen in a certain amount of time, in most states it's 30 days, the arresting state can let the person go. So, Carrie may not have waived extradition and thought, yeah, let them go through the expense of coming to get me, or maybe she did waive extradition and then New Hampshire dragged its feet on picking her up. I can't see her coming up with $10,000 cash bail, but her mother and grandmother who lived together and eventually got custody of her children, maybe they somehow came up with cash to bail her out. At the time, Carrie was only wanted on welfare fraud and the non-payment of her DWI fines. Whether she waived extradition or not, I can't see New Hampshire falling all over itself to go down and pay to get her back from North Carolina. It would have been more expensive than what she had ripped off the state for. Whatever happened, when Carrie got out of jail on January 21st, 2005, three months after she went in, she didn't go home to New Hampshire. She ended up in Turning Point of Union County, a battered woman's shelter in Monroe, North Carolina, about 30 miles from the jail she'd been in. Assistant Attorney General David Ruff, when asked about all this, made it sound like it was a bureaucratic snafu that allowed Carrie to get out of jail the first time she was arrested. For whatever reason, they did not receive our governor's warrant and she was released, he said. Right. For whatever reason. I guess he didn't want to point out that no one in tight-fisted New Hampshire was going to spend money pursuing a welfare fraud charge with a person nearly a thousand miles away as I said, it would have cost more than she was accused of stealing. They probably figured at the time, great, she's another state's problem now. Good yeah. riddance. Roof said that once the warrant was reissued in May, Menard was located. Yes, she was located because the battered women's shelter called the police and said that she had said she was involved in a murder. Ooh. And placed under arrest and extradited. So he makes it sound felt like Menard was on the radar And she'd slip through their fingers, but they weren't going (laughs) to let it happen again. And then they issued a warrant and found her and got her sent back. That just isn't what happened. She confessed. They called the police and then the warrant was reissued in january 2005 when carrie was let out of jail in north carolina that was the same month investigators wouldn't let joey pelletier's friend get on a plane to minnesota until she went to the station for an interview they weren't (laughs) looking for carrie menard i know roof also wouldn't say if anyone else curtis yap maybe would be charged we are still actively following up on information we've learned in the last few weeks and haven't reached any decisions about any other suspects at this mm-hmm. point, he said. Carrie Menard and Curtis Yap's neighbors and Derry had a lot to say about the two. The relationship was turbulent, the paper oh, said.
1: Turbulent. And
0: as we always point out, it's not the relationship that is the problem. The neighbors described Carrie as loud and obnoxious. She didn't seem to have a job, and the union leader frequently called her an unemployed, unwed mother who'd lost custody of her children and stories. And just an FYI, I remember editing some of these stories, and I used to take that out. First of all, she was a partner. Stay-at-home moms are not referred to as unemployed, but yet somehow she was. It's just very irksome the way she's treated. I know she was involved in a murder, but anyway. Curtis Yak told his neighbors in Terry in Manchester before that that he was a landscaper. To prove it, he kept a lawnmower, weed whacker, and other tools in the bed of his older model pickup truck. Hmm. Alfred Lafrenier, 54, who lived across the street from Curtis and Carrie, said she used to always fight with her boyfriend. You could hear them at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning arguing with each other. Lafrenier also said he saw Amy Riley visit the couple. Hmm. She used to sit out there, he said, pointing to the building's front lawn. And just an FYI, he is the only person I could find who said Amy knew or visited the couple. Chris Lafreniere, 25, said of Yap, he seemed like he made his own hours. The younger Lafreniere said Yap seemed like a nice enough person, Mm. but he said he himself was somewhat petrified of Menard. She didn't look like she was afraid of anything. She looked like a girl who could definitely handle herself, he said. Hmm. And by the way, she was five foot five and weighed 175 to 185 pounds, if you're wondering. So that's uh, an inch taller and about the same weight as me. So I must look like a girl who can handle myself, too. You do. But Kim Foster, another neighbor and a woman, of course, said she felt that Menard was afraid of Yap from the interactions she saw with them. One example she gave was during the previous summer in 2004, Menard and Yap came to her home, and I get the impression maybe Foster was a nurse or something, although the story doesn't say, and Menard had a deep wound on her foot. She said she got it when she dropped a mirror on her foot and Uh. and told Foster she'd been to three or four different hospitals and they wouldn't help her. Foster said, I wondered why the hospital hadn't stitched her up because it was bad. It was right down to the bone. And she pointed Ah. out that that hospitals would not send somebody away with an injury like that. Foster got bandages and was set to clean the wound when Yap stepped in and said he'd do it himself. Foster felt he was making sure to control the situation as well as how much Carrie Menard said about what had happened. Mm -hmm. Foster said, I just thought she was afraid of him. Just the way he jumped in and said, nope, I'll do it. She only wants me to do it. He was right there. She couldn't move or anything. Later, another neighbor told Foster that Menard had said Yap had attacked her, and that's how her foot got hurt. Oh, sure. When Menard was arrested, Amy's friend Janelle Robb said, I was really surprised it was a woman. Yes, aren't we all? So, what about Curtis Yap? Yes. In January 1988... Curtis Oyap, 19 at the time, and a resident of 5 St. James Street in Derry, was sentenced to 30 days in Hillsborough County Jail for driving with a suspended license and speeding. That was the first, but not the last, newspaper story about criminal charges for Curtis Oyap over the next 17 years. On December 27, 1990, when he was 22, Yap was arrested at his home in Derry on fugitive charges. Boston police said he had killed Michael Blakely, 18, of Dorchester, Mass, in hmm. November 1990. Likely was shot in the head while he was walking to a store with a friend. I checked out the Boston Globe on newspapers.com and could find nothing about this. So this account is from the union leader, the only story that goes into detail about it that I could find. When Yap was arrested at his home in Derry, Police were body bunkers because, according to Derry Police Captain Malcolm McIver, Yap was considered armed and dangerous. Neighbors who wanted to leave before the 2 p.m. arrest were allowed to evacuate. And I guess it's good Yap wasn't looking out his window or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering how police managed to do that without him noticing. It turns out, though, Yap went quietly, though they did find weapons in his house. Boston hmm. Police Homicide Lieutenant Edward J. McNally said so information developed during the investigation led them to yap and that's mm. please speak for we're not telling you anything about how we found him yeah the story said that before coming to new hampshire yap lived in dorchester close to where blakely was shot and cites the boston herald the dairy cop mcivor said yap had been living at 5 james street on and off for a period of time and while I'll say, I think that was his home because that was his address nearly three years before when he was arrested on that suspended license charge. And my guess is, like many people that age at that time who lived in New Hampshire, he'd drift down to Boston to stay with or visit friends because there was nothing fucking going on in New Hampshire. The confusion about whether he was a New Hampshire guy or a Boston guy may have been because he was black. Something no story about him ever says but it would have made him stick out in dairy back then. I believe he was either a native of Jamaica or his parents were, even though none of the stories say that either. And there are times when it would be relevant for them to do so later. The Swamp Murders episode portrays him as a very big, very dark black guy with a heavy Jamaican accent (laughs) and long, long Rastafarian braids. Since I can find no photos of him or descriptions of him, All stories scrupulously avoid describing him, which is very rare for the union leader back then, which I don't know if that was his actual appearance. It's possible he was just a regular everyday looking black guy. At his arraignment in Derry District Court on the fugitive charge in 1990 out of Boston, Yapp said he had attended Hampstead Middle School in Hampstead, New Hampshire, and then Pinkerton Academy until late in his junior year. His mother lived in Hampstead, he said. He said he didn't know anything about Blakely's homicide and wanted to go back to Massachusetts to strain things out, but he wanted to be appointed an attorney before he made any decision about waiving extraditions, Massachusetts. This is a savvy guy. The prosecution requested high bail, though the story doesn't say what it was, citing Yap's failure to appear in court for motor vehicle violations in the past. They also noted Yap had no permanent address Although they say he'd been living at 5 James Street in Derry, and that seems like it was a permanent address to me, since that was also his address three years before. I wonder, too, if he was a Jamaica citizen. Jamaica allows dual citizenship. Oh, that could be. And this comes up later. And I wonder if that was an issue with the bail. But if it was, it's lost to the ages, since the reporter didn't mention it in the story. Yap was sentenced to 7 to 15 years. Under the Interstate Compact Agreement, he served it in the New Hampshire State Prison in Concord. He was paroled on August 7th, 1996, after serving less than five years of that sentence. Wow. On October 18th, 1999, he was arrested for threatening what the union leader called his living girlfriend and whipping her with a bell and kicking her. Ah. That girlfriend was Carrie Menard, though the story doesn't name her. He, as I said, he beat her with a belt and kicked her and threatened to break her ribs because she'd forgotten to set the alarm clock, making him late for work. Wow, well, you know. Although we know that's not the reason I that know. he did it. Yeah, 31 at this time and Menard 23... Very weirdly, coincidentally, at the time, lived at 348 Spruce Street in Manchester, just wow. down the street from where serial rapist Stephen Deschane, hmm. four years later, would live at three ninety Spruce Street. But it's that, you weird know, that inner, those inner city Manchester apartment buildings are very itinerant. And you know how it's just like Portland, people drift in and out, and you yeah. see the same people, and Yep was scheduled to be in court December 7th, 1999, on the simple assault charge. But the day he was supposed to be in court, police dropped the charges because they said Menard chose not to go ahead with the complaint. Oh,
1: crying out. Court, Mar- re-
0: court records said she wouldn't testify for Fifth Amendment reasons, which means she would have been implicating herself in a crime. But before they let Yap out of jail that day, Carrie told them that he'd threatened her during his nearly two months in Valley Street Jail, saying if she didn't drop the charges, he'd hurt her and more. He apparently said this in phone calls from the jail, as well as in letters to her. So, so much for calls being recorded. Oh, shit. And letters being read. Censored, right? The Fifth Amendment, by the way, is your right to not be tried for a capital crime without an indictment, your right to not be tried again for a crime you've been acquitted of, and you're right not to be a witness against yourself, which is when people mostly use it. What Carrie actually told police was that she was afraid to testify, so I'm not sure how the Fifth Amendment comes into them initially dropping those charges. In court, December 8th, the next day, after he was originally supposed to be in court, Yap was arraigned on the assault charge because they undropped them, and Prosecutor Jennifer Sandoval from the Attorney General's office said a parole violation was also being added because, as you remember, he was on parole for manslaughter for killing Michael Blakely. Police Prosecutor Steve Ramfos told Judge Norman Champagne that police were investigating the threatening charge. Ramfos asked for $25,000 cash or surety bail on the assault charge, citing Yap's conviction for manslaughter eight years before. Yap appeared puzzled by the latest charges against him, the union leader reported. He told the judge, I think it's outrageous that they just came up with all this stuff when everything was going fine. My lawyer lawyer was just here yesterday. How come they didn't mention all this to her? I was being released yesterday. How can I commit another crime when I'm behind a locked door? Why am I so dangerous a day later when I wasn't dangerous yesterday? (sighs) The judge told Yap that the police were investigating allegations that he had threatened to assault the victim. He had already been charged with assaulting. Yap wasn't swayed. All I'm saying is that I'm getting shafted here. Bail, I think, is too high. Uh, I don't think anyone asked him. He told the judge he'd been out on parole for three years. If I was a crime committer, I would have committed a crime in the last three years. He was tried a month later and sentenced to 12 (laughs) months in jail on the assault charge and another 12 months on the criminal threatening charge to be served consecutively, which means one after another, a two-year sentence. But about a year after he started serving, the second 12 months was reduced to six months (laughs) with six months suspended on the condition he attend domestic violence oh. counseling and have no contact with Menard, and he was let out of jail. Mm. He obviously still had contact with Menard since he moved right back in with her when he was let out of jail. And I'll bet you anything, he didn't go to domestic violence counseling. And if he did, it didn't take. <laughs> on April 11th, 2003, four months before Amy was killed, Yap was arrested at 2.15 a.m. and charged with being a felon in possession of a dangerous weapon. He'd gotten into a fight with a guy named Eddie Perez at a Manchester apartment and pulled a knife in a threatening manner and threatened to kill him. Hmm. Nobody was hurt in the fight, and it's not clear if Yap got any time for doing that. There was a little story in the paper saying he'd been charged, but there was nothing that said he was convicted. If he was, it wasn't much. Despite his record of assault and constant parole violations, the fact he threatened somebody with a knife as a convicted felon, a knife he wasn't allowed to have, he was free in the summer of 2003 when Amy Riley was murdered. Sometime in early 2004, still in Manchester, this was after Amy was murdered, Yep, was arrested for felony possession of heroin, but again, it's not clear if he did any time for it or if, if he had gone to court yet yeah, on those charges by mid-July. And remember, you may not, because this has been a long tale, how a while back I said I'd talk more about July 2004. Yes. Yeah. So just a reminder, because I know there's a lot of timeline stuff. The timeline,
1: July... Yes. Right,
0: right. July 2004 was three months after Amy's remains were found and okay. 11 months after she was killed. On July 19th, 2004, YEP was in court being arraigned on charges of, once again, assaulting Carrie Menard. <laughs> He'd kicked her in the stomach and punched her and threatened to kill her. He told Derry District Court Judge Lawrence Warhol that he strained out his life since his manslaughter conviction 12 years before. He had a good job working at Northlight Glass and Derry, where he'd been for the past three months. He said, I've done everything I could to be a good citizen since oh, I got out of prison, including donating to the Salvation Army. <laughs> of the reason he'd been in prison, he said, I didn't try to commit murder. It just happened that day. <laughs> Prosecutor Anthony Ruggiero begged to differ. He noted Yap's criminal record. Aside from manslaughter, the one that put him in prison, Curtis had convictions on since he got out of prison on several weapons charges, four separate simple assaults, and the criminal threatening charge. Warhol set bail at a laughable $5,000 cash and ordered that Yap have no contact with Menard. I cannot believe a convicted felon with a... Long history of domestic violence and assault against other people, of owning weapons when he wasn't supposed to, and other various charges, was given bail of $5,000 and ordered to stay away from Menard, which he did not do. Of course he didn't. They never do. They never do. No. His next hearing was set for July 28th in Derry District Court. By then, of course, Carrie Menard and Curtis Yap had fled New Hampshire. Despite later reports the contrary, Curtis and Kerry had stuck around after Amy was killed and even after her remains were found. Many later stories said Yap apparently left the state after Riley was killed. That just wasn't true, and the union leader should really have read its own stories, which showed <laughs> that wasn't true. My belief is that now he was in court again three months after the remains were found. Because of his record, it was going to be rough. And he didn't want to chance them finding out what had happened or Carrie saying something. You know, if the police started pressuring her and she had just been indicted that month on the fraud charges, too, with that $5,000 bail, he was out and they so left that is New Hampshire. When the cops brought Carrie Menard back to New Hampshire, a reporter asked about YAP. In like the first day or something, I mean, the first day that they knew she had been brought back and they in the AG's office said no charges has been brought against him yet. They were still investigating. A few days later, a reporter asked again and someone from the AG's office said they knew where Yap was and they wouldn't comment when asked if he was cooperating with investigators. What the AG's office would comment on was something everyone had pretty much suspected since she was found was that Amy was killed the night she disappeared. They also confirmed the cause of her death was blunt force trauma to her head, which Amy's mother had told the press right after her remains were found, but police wouldn't comment on, but now they said, yes, that was true. Carrie Menard was being held in Hillsborough County Jail in Manchester without bail on the murder charge and $100,000 bail on one count of welfare fraud. Not much happened for a few months, but on October 4th, 2005, Carrie Menard pleaded guilty to one count of welfare fraud and was sentenced to one to three years in state prison. It was five months after she'd been brought back to New Hampshire, but she still hadn't been indicted for Amy Riley's murder. Assistant Attorney General Ruff said, it's still pending. Beyond that, I can't comment. Mm. Investigators have been mum about Curtis Yap. A union leader reporter asked Ruff if, perhaps, Yap was out of the country. That is a possibility, Conceded rough. The newspaper story then said he would not say where Yap was or whether authorities want to question him as a witness in the Riley case. Hmm. It confounds me that the union leader or law enforcement never said whether Yap was a Jamaican citizen, which I I know, which I believe he was. And you'll see how this plays out. I think he took off for Jamaica around the time or before Kerry was arrested at the Charlotte airport. On October, 2004. Uh, I don't know if she was leaving with him or leaving to go join him. I'm not sure how he got out of the country. There was a fugitive warrant out for Carrie's welfare fraud, but not for Yap. A convicted felon who'd skipped out on the assault charge from July, 2004, a few months before Carrie was first arrested on her. Maybe if he had Jamaican citizenship and had a one-way ticket out of the U.S., they just figured it was easier to let him go. Who knows? But it's the only thing that makes sense. You know, another thing of he'll be somebody else's problem. Let him go back to Jamaica. Police have never said anything about any of that. And apparently all reporters asked during the summer and fall of 2005 is where's Curtis Yap and will he be charged? The law enforcement wouldn't comment and no one ever looked any further. A Hillsborough County grand jury finally handed up a first degree murder indictment against Carrie Menard on October 26, 2005. The indictment said that Menard purposely killed Amy Lynn Riley by beating and or drowning her. It also said that Menard was acting in concert with and aided by Curtis Yap. The brief union leader story on the indictment points out that questions have been raised about whether Yap helped Menard kill Riley, but authorities wouldn't implicate him. Now, hmm. the indictment against Carrie did. But no charges still were brought against Yap. The story says that Yap had apparently left the country after the murder. Yeah, 11 months or more after and is believed to be in the Dominican Republic. Shame on the union leader for getting two things wrong in one sentence that they could have easily have gotten right. If whoever wrote the story read the newspaper's own stories, they'd know he was still in the area 11 months after the murder, newspaper not only had a story about him being in court in July 2004, but it had been mentioned in an earlier story yeah. about Carrie Menard. And it's very likely, again, that he was in Jamaica and not the Dominican Republic. They are two totally separate countries. Ooh. The story said that Senior Assistant Attorney General Will Delker refused to say if authorities had taken steps to bring Yap back to the United States. Delker also wouldn't confirm Yap's precise whereabouts. He would only say investigators know generally where Yap is. On November 15, 2006, more than a year after Carrie Menard's indictment, she pleaded guilty in Hillsborough County Superior Court to second-degree murder in Amy Riley's death. Will Delker from the AG's office laid out the official story of what happened for Judge Philip Mangoni's. The story was that Menard and Yap met Amy outside the hideaway lounge across the street from the hog's trough. Yap offered Amy a ride, quote, possibly to buy drugs, unquote, Delker said. The three drove around for a while in Yap's truck, and supposedly, Yap and Amy started a flirt, which enraged Carrie. She became so enraged that she grabbed a claw hammer and began striking Amy in the head, supposedly 10 to 12 times with both the claw and round ends of the hammer. When the claw end of the hammer stuck in Amy's head, uh, Amy begged to have it pulled out. Uh, Delker uh, said Riley was conscious during most of the assault, which continued for 20 minutes to half an hour. Apparently, they were driving around Manchester while this was going on. Uh, yeah, sure. When Yep told Menard to stop Amy screaming, Menard tried to snap Amy's neck, but wasn't strong enough. Eventually, they ended up on Stark Lane, where, according to Delker, Menard was still so mad that she jumped on Amy's chest. Then, Yap and Menard, quote, held Amy under the water to make sure she was dead, unquote. And that's what got this case on swamp murders. But according to the neighbors there, in August, there would not have been enough. It might have been muddy or a little bit of water, but it wasn't like a pond. Anyway, Yap then removed Amy's clothes to make it look like she was a rape victim menard told police Yap had dumped the hammer down a sewer grate near their dairy Ooh. apartment and that's where police found it amy's dna was found on the hammer and Ooh. in Yap's truck which they'd somehow managed to retrieve it's not clear if it was just sitting somewhere or if he'd sold it before he left or what but they managed to find his truck and find her dna in a victim impact statement read in court charlotte riley rightly so focused as much on the police as the killers. She said police would have taken her daughter's disappearance more seriously if she'd been a blonde college student, and that Amy was on a journey to find herself and deserved better than what had happened to her. Menard was sentenced to 30 years to life and given credit for 545 days of pretrial detention, although some of that was for her fraud charge and wouldn't count toward her murder charge. I checked the New Hampshire inmate directory... And it says if she serves her minimum, she'll be out November 12th, 2024. And if hmm. she serves the maximum, she'll be out April 24th, 2104, which will be a hundred years to the day after Amy Riley's remains were found. Interesting. And, and they must, if it's to life, they just must put some real, yeah. and she's serving in the New Hampshire Women's Prison in Goffstown. Hmm. A year Later, in November 2007, Carrie Menard was in court again to reconcile that DWI unpaid fine issue. (laughs) She had no money to pay the fine, but agreed to serve off it $50 a day concurrent to her sentence. It may have seemed like a pointless exercise, but public defender Donna Brown, who'd been her lawyer through this whole thing, told the judge Menard wanted to do it and set things right. She didn't want that to be left undone, which (laughs) I give her credit for curtis yap was never charged with anything the union leader wrote that he appeared to have fled the country and was living in the caribbean they didn't cite their source and the ag's office continued to not comment on it apparently no journalist ever pursued why that i could find why he was never charged in this when he was obviously complicit while attention was given because of Charlotte Riley's persistence the fact police didn't take Amy Riley's disappearance seriously, no one pointed out that Curtis Yap should not have been free the night of August 15, 2003, to kill Amy Riley. And I fully believe if he had been in prison, Carrie Menard would not have done it. I don't believe flirting was what caused this murder. I fully believe even if Carrie Menard wielded the hammer curtis was behind the murder it doesn't pass the straight face test to me that carrie became furious that they were flirting grabbed a hammer and started wailing away and did it for 20 minutes to half an hour while curtis continued to drive around manchester the three of them crammed in the front seat of a pickup truck give me a fucking break i also think it's interesting that delker and his account of all this said when the app picked up amy it was perhaps to buy drugs yes amy had done drugs in the past but wasn't using them then. I'm not saying she wouldn't have, but perhaps didn't Carrie know why Yap picked up Amy. She was in the truck too. I also think it's interesting that all the descriptions of guys Amy was seen talking to after she left the hog's trough were white. Yeah, You don't have to have lived in Manchester in 2003 to know how much a black guy would stick out, even if he was just a regular looking guy and not the giant rasta jamaican guy that swamp murders had yet no one saw her talking to a black guy or saw her talking to carrie menard or for that matter saw her talking to anybody in a pickup truck i mean she obviously did but there was a lot of hyper focus on white guys who could pass for joey Pelletier. once yes. the police actually started investigating eight months after amy was killed i also wonder about that composite they never released the cook's description that the AAG had all that double talk about why they weren't releasing. You'd think if it matched any of their descriptions, they would have released it. I wonder if the composite was of a black guy. Yeah. So they figured it was not related, or and it a woman. certainly right, and it certainly didn't fit their story storyline. If it wasn't a black guy, it's a strange reversal of what usually would have happened. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Carrie Menard obviously was a victim of chronic abuse and coercive control. I'm sure the welfare fraud, which was also for Curtis Yapp's children, not just hers, was at least partially his idea. It bothers me that nobody ever pointed out those children were his and that she was constantly described as an unwed mother and vilified when he, with his history, was not. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying Carrie's role in the murder should be excused. But as I said, I don't buy the flirting story and that she went nuts and Curtis, who had abused Carrie for years and obviously controlled her and was a violent, abusive man, just sit there and drove around and let it happen. I also think it's possible he raped Amy, no. but there would have been no way to prove it by April 2004 when her remains were found. Gee, just think if they had taken her disappearance Seriously early and possibly found her earlier. Mm. It's very possible that Amy knew them. Maybe Curtis was one of the Rockingham County jail inmates she'd worked with at the construction recycling place. He was certainly in and out of jail enough. And Derry is in Rockingham County, yeah. Derry, where he lived. They offered Amy a ride and something happened. But I bet it was different than that lame flirting oh, story. Yeah. I so bet good. Curtis during the few months after they fled New Hampshire, convinced Carrie Menard to take the rap if they got caught because she'd get a lesser sentence than he would because of his violent criminal record and manslaughter conviction. Who knows what Carrie told the people in the North Carolina shelter? Who knows what she really told the cops? The indictment with her supposed story came out five months after she was brought back to New Hampshire. Why did it take so long? A lot can happen with a confession and police questioning over five months. How much did the police manipulate Carrie Menard Mm -hmm. and her story? We know they read technique the shit out of Joey Pelletier, and that was just three hours, not five months. What was that big stain on the carpet and portion of floor that they removed from their dairy apartment? Obviously, it didn't have anything to do with Amy, or they would have said. I bet the blood would match Carrie's, given the app's history. Maybe they were trying to track down Curtis in those five months before the indictment or find people who could give evidence now that they know who did it. But if so, why didn't they get a warrant? What about the other charges that he skipped out on? Why was there no fugitive warrant for those? Amy Riley was the victim in all this, but I also think Carrie Menard was one too and an easy target for everyone. Again, that's not to say I excuse her role. I think Curtis Yap was charming, a bullshitter, and able to get out of things. We saw that a little with the two accounts of him in court. He made sure to get his opinion out there. He tried to make himself look good. I know. He was a a manipulator and a controller. He found a way to assault someone every single time he got out of jail. And who knows how many assaults against other people and about Carrie Menard were never reported. I think that story the woman told about her cut foot, he wasn't going to bring her to the hospital because he had a record of domestic violence and he didn't want somebody at the hospital to report him to the police. Yeah. Yet he seemed not to do too much time for any of his offenses. And as his violent offenses stacked up, he seemed to do less and less time. And nobody cared or tried to track them down. As you know, I'm an advocate of not over-sentencing people to prison and stuff. But I think when somebody shows you that they're a violent offender and continues over the course of almost 20 years to just consistently offend and break the rules and not do what they're told, that you need to make everyone safe by putting them in jail. Police played up Carrie Menard's welfare fraud to the hilt. They made sure everyone who read the paper knew what a bad person she was. But Curtis, they wouldn't say a fucking word about that. I know. They wouldn't even say whether he was a U.S. citizen or not. They wouldn't say fucking word one, including the fact that those two kids who were the tools for the welfare fraud, were his as well as Carrie's. The only explanation to me is that they dropped the ball from the beginning. Who even knows how many ways? This is just the stuff I can figure out from the paper. And Curtis Yap slipped through their hands, and they wanted to hide the fact as much as possible and redirect everyone's attention to Carrie Menard. Mm -hmm. Shame on fucking Mm -hmm. them, because... Convicting someone for murder is not just about closure for a family. In our system, people who murder people should be punished for it. And it's yeah. about the justice system working. And he was rarely punished. That poor kid he shot in Dorchester, he served less than five years for. No and who shit. knows why he shot the kid. There's no article. Oh, I didn't it. plan on doing it. It just happened. One final footnote about Curtis Yap. On June 28, 2010, the Jamaica Gleaner, an online Jamaican news outlet Ooh. said that Curtis O. Yap, 41 of Cambridge District, St. James in Jamaica, was one of a group of men charged with stealing boat engines. Hmm. It's possible it's a different Curtis Omar Yap, but the age is right for him. Yeah. And, and so it would be a huge coincidence if there were two current Curtis Omar Yaps of the same age. In any case, a fisherman spotted these men taking off with their loot, their stolen boat engines in a boat through this bay and the fishermen raised the alarm according to the story fisher folk armed <laughs> with machetes and sticks Ooh. found the thieves attempting to unload the engines from their boat three men escaped in a waiting motor car but the other two one of them Curtis oh Yap, were chopped with the machetes and beaten. Oh. he was not yeah. killed he oh. was just chopped a little and that is the end of that story Wow. No, I didn't know anything about that. I had forgotten it. I, you know, I worked at the union leader at the time I lived on the West side where her body was found, not that part of the West side, but, and I was an, just a copy editor at the time. And I remember it well. And I remember my frustration about a lot of things. I wasn't really in a position to do things and it wasn't like I was like going on about it all the time, but I do remember feeling at the time and the way I feel now that Carrie Menard is guilty as she may have been was the target of all this. and. I have no idea how Curtis Yap. My theory of what happened is he's
1: obviously a violent person. Someone who is a domestic abuser is a violent person. Yes, We've talked about this before. Just you can't say, oh, he's just he's just beats his wife. Well, you know what? If there's another woman around that he can get away with beating or raping or whatever he did. I think what happened is maybe you're right. And he knew her. They had met or something. Who somehow. knows? Because
0: you know how it is in Manchester. It's just like Portland. People run into each other. The- and they could have they- offered her a ride. It's a couple. Right. If you're a young
1: woman and you meet, right. you see a couple, it's like okay, it's not a single guy. Whatever happened, if if Carrie was the one that hit her with a hammer. I think it was at his, he was making her do it because we've had other ones. What was that one I did? It reminded also me a New lot Hampshire, of the one. Yeah. The guy made the woman cut the guy's off awesome. and it, he was an abuser right, as well. Right. And that's one way to implicate them in your crime. And now they're part of your crime and they're not going to tell on you. And as for the whole story, like I've said before about confessions, I'm always... Especially when the read, like you said, they prove that they're read technikers. She could have signed something that some stupid cat made up. Oh, well, what was he doing? Flirting with her or something? Oh,
0: and then you got men. Or Or, come on, Carrie, tell us the truth. They were flirting, and you got jealous, you know. And I mean, she was probably worn I down. I can't take
1: anything with it. And right. she probably was like, "Fuck it, I don't care anymore." In fact, I'm if I really go to jail,
0: right? I already, I did hit her with a hammer. Right. It doesn't matter why. Whatever, you know. Right. And and if I really really had to speculate, my guess is after they picked her up, and probably just for a ride home or something. Not yeah. Not perhaps to buy think, drugs. I don't
1: think to buy drugs. I no. think they just said, "Why you want to go?" Or do you want to go ride around with us? Whatever. Because right. you know? she was waiting
0: for Joey, and she had to kill some time. If I really had speculate, I guess that Curtis made a move on her, which she rebuffed. Yes. And then things went to hell. And I don't think it was Carrie doing all the attacking. And if it was, because Curtis was like, yeah, I've already done prison time for manslaughter. I have that. Even if. He did it. He probably
1: would do something like that, right? If someone's an abuser and they want to put a move on a woman in front of their wife, they're going to do it. They don't care. Right. What's she going to do about it? Give me a
0: break. It's funny because I was looking up something else and came across that and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's what happened. The one I'm going to do next is the same thing. I was
1: looking at something right. else and I saw that and, the, and I'm like, that's interesting. Right. I, and so, but now yeah. that I
0: own that Swamp Murders episode... Um, <sighs> I'll put a link to it on the website, okay. but I don't think people can access it without paying oh, $1.99, yeah, but Becky, sometime when you're up here, we can watch it. Okay. Oh. <laughs> but it's so funny, like, the accents of the people. Oh, honey, you're not going to the city, are you? And I'm like they go to the fucking city every day. Of it's fucking so stupid. It's not like any of the ones I've. I seen. actually it trashed it, so it on um, IMDb. But anyway, do you have a? No. <laughs>
1: I just watched this recently, so I figured I'd do it. It's not really a crime. It's on Netflix, The Perfect Bid. Oh, yeah. It's a little over an hour, like an hour and 12 minutes or something. Little documentary. I watched it with mom and dad. Oh. Mom did not enjoy it at all oh she's like is anybody watching this because she wanted to turn the channel and i'm like i'm watching it did dad Dad, like it yes dad liked it it's about the show the price is right which has been on for uh, god knows how many years 60 years or something it focuses on this contestant ted slosson well he wasn't really a contestant he was a contestant but not at the beginning he was like a super fan he's like obsessed (laughs) <laughs> with the price is right he was a math teacher the documentary was made in 2017 he was on the show like i think it was late 80s early 90s and then later he was on again he would go in the audience and apparently there's lots of people in the audience like this and I did used to watch a show when I was a kid in the 70s when we'd be home from school and stuff but I didn't watch it much oh I watched it
0: um I haven't watched it recently but I used to watch it a lot during my adulthood oh like like sometimes if I go to the grocery store you know and I'm doing the self. Check out, and I have three items in a row that are all like two dollars yeah. and seventy nine cents. Like I always think of that thing on there. Which of these items is yes. not two dollars and seventy nine? Yes.
1: So. He noticed from watching all the time that they would have the same items over and over again. So he made these like spreadsheets and he'd memorize them so he'd know the prices of stuff. And so when if you've ever watched the show, they'll call four people down and then they have Come to on guess. Down. And so the audience yells. And if you watch a show, you'll see that the people who are the contestants will be looking out at the audience, being like, help. And right. you know, and then people will huh. be yelling stuff and they'll be so it's kind of like a group thing and it's everyone thinks it's fun it's kind of encouraged so he would do that and he helped people win and
0: he would be on there quite
1: a bit and didn't then,
0: he have a trick to get in the audience because he had to get in line and stuff right he had
1: a little i don't want to tell the whole thing but he had oh, this yeah. shirt that said he wanted to kiss holly right, who's one of right. the models which is kind of sleazy but back then you know 90s oh. so anyways let me go through the negative nelly's score bad reenactments no there are no reenactments it's all just talking to him and archival footage of the show and i also talked to a producer a lot and he gives a lot of good background about how the show is made and stuff so i thought it was interesting i think that's why mom thought it was boring narrative cliches no there's no narrator there's just interviews and then footage ted and the producer guy are basically telling the story i'll tell you more about the story at the end racial gender obtuseness no lack of good visuals no the opposite of that there were good visuals I liked seeing the uh older (laughs) film of the show it was fun Uh, missing pieces I am taking half a point off like I said it was only an hour I wanted to know more I wanted to know more about how the show how they ran the show just things that happened behind the scenes I thought it was very interesting inaccuracies anachronisms no storytelling again just half a point off just because because again i thought it could have been there could have been more more to it freshness it was fresh i didn't really know how how things worked. Like i always thought just the people were just picked at random from right, the audience that right. they gave their names they actually kind of vet the people when they're waiting in line right and people come to wait in line at like three that's what line. i was remembering about yeah. the line yeah yeah repetition no and beating the drum no And so the way things came to a head was Ted himself became a contestant once. He didn't get, you know, when they spin that big wheel to get to a dollar, close to a dollar, he was knocked out. So he didn't get to the showplace showdown. But there was another couple that did. A couple that was in line with him and he was talking to them and they ended up sitting near him. And the husband got called. His name was Terry something. I can't remember. But it doesn't matter. If you watch it, you'll see. But he got to the showdown. The whole premise of the show is you're supposed to guess prices of things and you have to get close to the price without going over. But if you get within a hundred, then you win both showcases. And this Terry guy, Ted was calling out the exact, he had figured it out in his head. He knew all the stuff, calling out the exact number. And he told the wife, he's like, well, I don't want it to be exact because then they'll think something... But the wife wasn't listening to him. So the wife, because she was sitting next to Ted. So she was calling out the exact and that he guessed the exact amount. And it was the exact amount of the showcase, which had never happened before. Drew Carey was the host at this time because this was much yeah, later.
0: I was like a Bob Barker. I like and that. they
1: stopped the show the show for like 10 or 15 minutes to figure out what to do. Because if you think about the f- history of game shows, there have been fixes going on and stuff in the 50s. There was scandals, So they weren't sure what to do. So that was the whole thing. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't
0: cheating. He just figured it out. He just figured
1: it out. And it was something that was always encouraged. Yeah. Because of that, they've changed the policy. So I gave it a nine. I think it was really fun to watch. It's enjoyable. I thought it was very interesting. And like I said, I would have wanted to learn more. I did think that Drew Carey's a dick and came off as a dick. Yeah. They have a clip of him being interviewed by Kevin Pollack for some podcast or show or something. And I'm like, fuck you. It's just a game show. Anyways, I highly recommend it. I gave it an eye. i have to
0: watch it again. I watched it a couple of years ago and I liked it too. And I agree with you because I'm always very interested in how shows get made. Like I love more stuff on like how house hunters and things like that. I
1: would love to see if I was a person that made series, which obviously I don't. I think it would be very unpopular in the industry, but I think it would be a great series to go behind the scenes Of all sorts of reality shows. And
0: explain how Uh, they really. How they do them.
1: I mean, because you read stuff. I don't want to dispel the fantasy or whatever, but at the same time,
0: I'm just curious. Yeah, me too. I felt bad because he wasn't doing anything wrong. It was just his obsession. (laughs) I know he's obsessed. One thing I liked is they had a key
1: when he was a math teacher. He's a math teacher. I don't know if he still is. He might be retired. But he had a show with this other teacher that was, because this was pre-internet. Right. They had a show called Homework Help or something. It was like a local show that kids could call in with help for their homework. Right. I thought yeah. it was funny. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
0: And because this has been such a long episode, we should probably go. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, and, and I'm up next for, time. Thanks for coming back after our break. Yeah. yeah. Good night. Good night. what the (laughs) fuck are you
1: doing what are you doing i was taking off my. i
0: was taking my socks off because i was so hot it's so hot and if you've ever seen photos of remains too they're not i I, maybe i shouldn't have gone down that route with that you can get rid of that yeah i will